Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Bottom of the Bill. We've got a great episode for you today. One of my favorites. Yeah, man. Uh, so smooth. Yeah, really. Just like jazz. <laughs> well, not all jazz, see how right? I, see how I tossed it uh, up yeah, there so for you? That was a nice that was a little Kenny G podcast for you? No, smoother. Ooh, smoother than Kenny G. Yeah, it was like if uh, Shania Twain learned how to play saxophone. Okay. <laughs> Um, so we had Rick Lawler on the podcast today. He's a phenomenal guitar player, singer, songwriter, plays with Jameson Ross, Jimmy Herring, did, did a stint with Colonel Bruce. Uh, the dude is just like, I mean, played with Elvis Costello, Larkin Poe. I mean, just like it, such a seasoned, experienced guy and just such an easy person to talk to. I've, I've, this is one of the best interviews we've had in a long time, I feel like. Anton can't even put a sentence together. That's how much this podcast means to it us. It just felt, it was it was cool, man. It's like right in my wheelhouse of, of like yeah. uh, influences and just the fact that he was such an easygoing uh, guy to talk to. What do they, do they hand out Emmys for podcasts? Uh, do you think that this one would get an Emmy? I, I think it would be nominated. Yeah. For sure, you got you got a good one coming. iHeartRadio does it. I, does what? Does, does like like a podcast uh, award situation? I want an Emmy. You want an Emmy? Yeah. Well, I don't think we're there yet. Oh, well, just you know. at least nominate it. Okay. Well, we'll submit and see what happens. Anyways, enough talking. Let's get to the episode. Real quick though, before we do that, we need to plug the YouTube and uh, the Spotify and all that stuff. Please follow, subscribe. We got merchandise available on those platforms as well. Uh, anything that we can do to help grow this thing, tell your people about it. Keep listening to the interviews and support what we're doing. We got a lot of cool stuff, a lot of amazing guests coming up. Uh, and it's just, it's just, it keeps getting better and better and better. And we want you guys to be a part of the experience with us. So please do uh, youtube.com slash bottom of the bill. We got a website dropping soon and all that good stuff. So keep up with us. Uh, enjoy the episode, guys. New episode of Bottom of the Bill starts now. This is. Bottom of the bill. Where we talk about the modern grind of a musician. Album cycle. Oh, hold on, Bill. Give me a second, man. Because we don't know what we're talking Spotify about. Spotify playlist. You keep interrupting me. That's not how we discussed it. Just give me a second, man. We invite established artists Festival on Festival lineups. Can I just get my stuff out real quick? We invite established artists on to share their strategy to success. Marketing strategy. The premier do-it-yourself podcast. Hashtag DIY. Aw, screw it. This is the bottom of the bill. The podcast is called Bottom of the Bill. Hey! So. <laughs> Uh, Got to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, well, let's let's kick it off. Um, Rick, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thanks for doing this. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm stoked about talking about all the stuff that you got going on right now. I've been going back and just listening to some stuff, uh, not least of which is the, um, what was, damn it, the one that you put out back in 2012. Ooh, Soulful Hang. Soulful Hang. I've been going back listening yeah. to that like all day. <laughs> nice. And then some of the Jameson Ross stuff that you've been doing. Uh, but before we get into all that, you just moved to New York. I did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I grew up in Florida, Tallahassee, went to Florida State, moved to Atlanta, was there for 13 years. And then uh, this past spring, 
left Atlanta and I just landed in New York uh, a couple months ago. So I'm just kind of getting my feet wet, figuring out what life is like up here. But uh, it's, yeah, it's very exciting, very creative, obviously a challenge, but uh, it's one I, I wanted. So yeah, it feels good to be here. Yeah, man. What's the, uh, the dynamic like going up there from Atlanta, having, I'm sure you worked real hard to get plugged into the Atlanta scene and now it's like kind of starting from scratch again, or is there an opportunity you moved for? Uh, it feels less like starting from scratch than moving to Atlanta did originally. I'm just at a different phase of life. I'm, you know, mid thirties and, uh, I, I've known people up here. I've been coming up here, you know, for years to play, even though I've never lived here. So a few of my like close buddies, like from college and just the music scene, uh, have been up here plugging away. So I'm, I'm not starting from exactly ground zero, although I'm definitely an unknown quantity to the vast majority of the scene up here. <laughs> sure. I'm just kind of making the rounds, you know, doing the stuff I did in Atlanta and Tallahassee just to like meet people. Hitting the jams um, and but everything. Yeah, jams and just, you know, I, I'll see a friend that's playing or an acquaintance. Like last night, I, uh, a guy I've known for a long time, this guy, Chris Parker, great guitar player. Uh, I just happened to see on Instagram that he was playing uh, at a venue in the East Village. Like, I was at Rockwood Music Hall at the time, and I was like, oh, he's playing, like, a 10-minute walk away. I'll go over there. And I did, and I ended up sitting in and, like, meeting a bunch of cool people. And, yeah, it's just trying to do – it felt good to do that and just meet some new folks, you know? Nice, man. Are you, yeah. like, like freaking out about, like, having to kind of play that game? And not even play that game, but just having to kind of do the motions again and the uncertainty of the unknown and all that? Uh, yeah, but it's like, I really asked for it. I think if I had tried to move here, uh, when I was younger, I would not have been like ready for this necessarily. Sure. There's a lot of people who come here and they just like, they're ready, you know, but for me personally, I was, uh, I don't think I had a strong enough sense of like who I was and what I was trying to do. Uh, I think Atlanta forced me to kind of grow into myself in that way. And Atlanta kind of prepared me for this. Cause I, I feel like myself, like, I don't feel like I'm trying to prove anything necessarily, even though I'd obviously <laughs> I have a lot to prove to people up here but for me it's just like I know who I am I know what I'm doing I'm gonna I'm not gonna try and become some idea of New York me it's like I'm just taking Tallahassee and Atlanta with me and I'm gonna be that here and just find my little spot in the city yeah, I love that that's man. what I hope I love that yeah. so inspiring also I love that what have you cool. what have you found to be like the hardest part about it so far I know you've only been up there for like what six months right but Moving all this goddamn furniture up the stairs, man. I got a fifth floor walk up. That's fuck. <laughs> Do you want me to have an elevator, bro? No, no elevator. Um, I spent most of today like putting together this couch you see behind me that I ordered off the internet. That's great. So I've, yeah, it's been a slow process. So that's tough. Oh. Obviously, ex rent is expensive as shit, and uh, you know there's rats everywhere. But you know you kind of reach an accord with the rats, and they allow you to continue living. <laughs> it's great. And in exchange, you get to eat a slice of Joe's pizza like every day if you want. Hell it's, yes. It's pretty cool. The fucking yeah. New York style pizza, bro. That shit's real. It's different. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. There's a there's something in the water. That's what they say. The water is so good up here. Yeah, totally. I believe it. Hell yeah. yeah. Um, so let's get into what you got going on now musically. What have you been working on? What are you excited about? Oh, man. Uh, quite a few things. Uh, obviously, the new Jamison Ross record just came out, J-Mo. Yep. Very happy for people to hear that. Um, I've been working on uh, a new solo record that's, uh, we'll see when it actually comes out. I started it last year, but I'm excited about that. Um, I've been playing here in the city with uh, my two of my really close friends, Kevin Scott, great bass player, Hell yeah. and Marlon Patton, drummer. And uh, the three of us have kind of like you know, formed a little New York trio. We're all Atlanta uh, transplants. Yep. So 
we're kind of going to do our thing. You know, this like Colonel Bruce informed weirdo Southern, you know, jazz jam, whatever it is, you know, do that up here. Uh, we've played a few times around the city and uh, it seems to be uh, not exactly in line with everything else that's going on. So I'm, I'm excited to see uh, how that takes root up here. Yeah. What are you noticing different about the the kind of music that's, you know, permeating the city versus what's permeating Atlanta? Oh, man, I, I don't know that I have enough of a um, perspective to be able to answer that fully. But uh, just from what I've seen, uh, I've seen an incredible level of musicianship. Obviously, you know, this is where the best of the best are. You know, you I, the other night I went and heard John Schofield and Dave Holland and Kurt Rosenwinkel Quartet Fuck in the man. same night. Christ. That's awesome, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like you could, they're just here. Like I heard Frizzell, you know, all, all the heroes are here. Um, Insane. And that's why... One reason I want to come here. So it's not like I'm competing directly <laughs> against them. Sure. Like, those are the legends. But just just the players that are working in the scene that I've seen here, like everybody can play. Everybody has a very specific, like they know that they're going in a certain specific direction. Um, or at least it seems that way. It's like they're you kind of have to drill down on like, who am I? What do I really sound like? What's my individual voice? Because if you're just relying on like, well, I'm a good X, Y, Z that's not really enough. It's like you have to have an identity and a voice to stand apart because everybody can play. Like that's not the issue. So it's a big difference between uh, being like an artist and just like a musician. I feel like is an artist like kind of their voice transcends the instrument, even though the instrument's just kind of the yeah. tool where there's a lot of players out there that can sound like anybody and they'll crush it, but they don't sound like themselves, you know? So totally th that, that kind of identity is super important. I love that you have that perspective. It's awesome. Yeah, that's something I think about a lot. And uh, my favorite players and artists, they all do that to some extent, you know, because we're all like, why are we doing this? Not to get too heady and philosophical right off the jump here, but like what's underneath? OK, we shed technique, we shed, you know, we learn recordings, whatever. Um, but there's got to be something that's it's it's really in the gap between your ability and what you're going for that's the interesting shit in there like where do you fuck up <laughs> and and that's oh i fucked up that's what's the most interesting thing is about me <laughs> let me deal with that you know right right what do you think about that bill i i totally agree man i think yeah. it's awesome yeah hell yeah um <laughs> right so what's the uh uh let's talk about the the, the jmo record uh did you yeah. so I was going through that today, and I noticed that the guitar work is very sparing on that. Are you involved in the writing on that, too? And what was it like kind of getting involved in a project where you're not necessarily writing for your instrument? You're more writing for the song, I feel like, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, this project mainly took shape uh, between Jameson and uh, his very close collaborator, the producer he chose, John Michael Ruchel, who's an amazing producer based out of New Orleans, uh, just really keen mind for all kinds of art and great taste and knows how to put a record together and create a vibe. So the two of them worked the hardest on it together. I, I was involved at the beginning of the process, actually right before the, the pandemic, Jameson came to my house in Atlanta and, uh, we wrote two songs or, or the beginnings of two songs in my basement. One of them ended up on the record. It's called love and you, um, really proud of that song and another one called still alive that uh, I think will end up getting released later as like a single or a B side or something. 
But uh, yeah, we started it there and then the pandemic happened and we all just lost our minds. Everybody did what they did. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I don't even think I picked up a guitar for a few months. And then somewhere around like the fall of that year, Jameson started, uh, you know, he finally felt in a place where he could go deep and write in a way he never had. And he wrote away from the drums. He uh, he even went live on Instagram late at night at some points. Like he would go and just play keys and sing and just vibe and I remember like watching him like, oh, bro, do that again. Like, that was sick. Sing that again. Hell yeah. Tell me more. Um, so he actually, yeah, it was the process was like right in front of everybody. And then uh, he took those demos and then just beat them into like perfect songs uh, with John Michael and a few other collaborators uh, in New Orleans. So, yeah, I think maybe March of 2021. I could be lying. Actually, November was our first session, 2020. I went down to New Orleans. We all like quarantined and stuff. Um, and we basically, Jameson had completed the arrangements. He had recorded all the drums that are on the record. He had already tracked those. They were mixed. And uh, we just got in the room and he was sitting in a big beanbag chair singing. <laughs> and the drums were like already the drums. They sounded like an album. And then it was myself and, and Jay White, great bass player, and Corey Irvin, master organ player, piano player, keys player. Um, and yeah, we just started playing to the vibe that was already there. Um, the songs were, they were just done. So it, it really wasn't that hard for my part in it. Um, in that sense, I'm playing to the song, like anyway, like I, it's not about me. I'm just there to be a texture, to be a paintbrush, uh, for whatever the song needs. And in that situation too, um, I know that I'm just giving them options. Like I know they're going to keep everything that I'm playing cause it's on a click. And, uh, I just, every take, I'm like trying to refine an idea and just give them things that I know that they're not going to use the entire live take that I did for most of it. They're just going to cut little parts here and chop it together and do something later. Like that, that was the production style of this record. Right. So, uh, a lot of the sparingness, it's like uh, what I did in the studio wasn't necessarily sparing. Uh, <laughs> it's like I played a whole <laughs> bunch of shit. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely not like a guitar solo record. Um, although, I am proud. Uh, the last note you hear on the record is me. Oh, <laughs> it's really? Like, I, I, it's like the very last song on the record, and it's like the one actual guitar solo I have, and I like play a lick, and that's it. That's the last thing you hear on the record. It's like, <laughs> all right, we'll let you get in a little bite at the end there. I love that. <laughs> Hell yeah. Totally. It's a, uh, do you feel like, all right, let me, let me backtrack this question a little bit because there's a way I want to ask it. Um, yeah. So... Is this record done through a label or is it all self-funded? Uh, that's actually a huge innovation for Jameson on this one too. So the, the first two records that we did with him, he, uh, he had won the Thelonious Monk International Jazz Competition, uh, which is a huge deal in the jazz world. Uh, and with that, you get a pile of money and you get uh, a major label deal with Concord Jazz Records. So Hell yeah. the first two records were on a major label. You know, we had the producer and A&R guy there with us in the control room the whole time. And, uh, you know, it was a big budget thing and, uh, you know, we experienced that side of it and it, there's a lot of obviously many great things about having like a team, a PR team and mad money, you know, behind you and our push for radio play and just all the connections that come, come with the major label. Um, but Jameson kind of got to a point in his career where he wanted to retain more control artistically, stylistically, we were getting away from being like a jazz group, uh, and having to check those boxes of like, did we swing enough? Like, did we play enough jazz standards on this record? 
um, which there was some, I don't want to speak out of turn, but there was definitely uh, a motion to like keep some of that intact. But just artistically, Jameson was evolving away from that. He had to. I mean, he was growing into himself uh, in, in a new way. So he got out of the label deal and started a new company um, with his longtime friend and business partner, David Hargrip, um, called Effective Music. And they're, you know, it's not just Jameson on the label. He is now growing it to sign other artists. It's, it's a record label. It's a booking agency. It's a, uh, you know, artist development management it's like kind of one-stop shop and they're specifically trying to like be modern r&b soul essentially black music like they want to be the new like this is black music in 2022 and they're doing it like they've signed uh avery sunshine uh they got michael kilgore uh and they're just cranking out these beautiful records and this this jmo record is kind of the flagship at least for me uh, of the approach that they're taking, uh, business wise and creatively, it's like all syncing up. So cool. So it's, yeah, it's been like getting added to radio and stuff. So that's, you can do it, you know, DIY, you just got to be smart. Right. Totally. Um, and I'm curious, do you feel having gone through both experiences, one more independent and one more of the major label stuff, do you feel more pressure when you know that like you're on your friend's dime kind of versus like be on the <laughs> label's dime to like go in there and like really get the job done or what's the, the, the mindset there? Oh man, that's the last thing on my mind, honestly. Like I would, I would pay Jameson to play with him. Yeah. Like, that's how. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it all comes out in the wash. He, he's an amazing friend and amazing band leader and he always takes, he's always taking care of his band. And uh, you know, obviously there's limitations when you don't have just like carte blanche uh, you know, business bank accounts and shit. But, uh, that was just not a factor. Like I didn't ask him, what are you going to pay? Like, I just didn't care. He did pay me. It was fine. But like, we just have that kind of relationship. I wouldn't advise doing that yeah. <laughs> with every person you record with, but, um, with him, it's like, I know it's going to be cool. And, uh, so no, I was not concerned about that. Like I, he brought us down to new Orleans for like two different sessions a week at a time, put us up, you know, like paid for dinner, like all that stuff. He's just, yeah. like, he takes care of people. So that's, yeah, that's I'm awesome. Worried about it. Yeah. I would be, I'd be so nervous being like, I was thinking the same thing too. I, I don't know what I'd be yeah. more nervous about. It seems like there's a lot of people that you could, uh, that would be on your back about working for like a label versus, you know, somebody else's dime, but it's your, it's your friend, right? Also as well. Yeah. So it's like, I'm, I, I would feel a little bit bad. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I don't know what to say. I would just feel a pressure of like wanting to nail it like yeah, as quick course. as possible and just like not yeah. wanting to like waste, feel not even like waste their time objectively, just feeling like you're wasting their time or their money yeah. by trying to like retake stuff or like, you know, because obviously you as a, as a musician on the album as well, like you have a standard that you're trying to meet, meet even though it might meet somebody else's standard. You're like, I don't want that out there because that doesn't meet my standard. So like, there's just, there's all these like little things internally. I feel like that go on when you're in there and when you're on, a, you know, the labels right. dime, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's one th that might be, there's definitely a pressure there, but you know, there's kind of like, like, you know, more money there to, to be found. Whereas when you're on your friend's dime, like that's something that I would try to be very cautious about. And it would probably make me feel more tense about performing in the studio, you know? I, I totally hear what you're saying. And that makes total sense. I, I for me in this situation, I had kind of had the flip of that. Like I felt more pressure when it was on a major label because there's like suits essentially in the room. Yeah, right. That's what I mean. And, and yeah, that's like, what I said. I think I'd be more nervous doing that too, though. I could see that. Like, you know, and they're sitting in there like, you know, 
in some cases, like you can tell music is not the only motivation of like, it's, it's like art. We're not just here for art. We're here for commerce because this needs to be able to be played on mainstream radio in these categories. And we need to make sure we, it's the right length and the solo is not too long and the blah, blah, blah. You know, it's these non-musical, non-artistic considerations that come in because, you know, the, the money comes with strings. Essentially, that's what the strings are. They're a business. They're going to make money off of this recording because they're paying for it. And I get like, that's how it works. You know, like that's what you're signing up for. Totally. But uh, I, th- I think, you know, removing that um, and just having, you know, freedom, like that's why he did it was to have complete artistic freedom. And that's what we did. So yeah, there, it wasn't even like, Oh, how are we going to afford this studio time? Like I, I'm sure Jameson was like, and, and his people were having to be careful about that. But uh, for us, as the performers on the record, you know, the level of musicianship is so high. It's not a question of like, are we going to get a take? Like we know we are, you know, it's, and, and there, the time pressure is good too. Like, I feel like a lot of times you can get bogged down, um, and take too long and, and nitpick things. And when you're in the process of tracking. So we, we tried really hard to stay in a creative mindset and artistic mindset and, uh, just get, ideas and Jameson was very careful and and his producer John Michael Rochelle were very careful to like curate the vibe in the room like candles the smell like instant like, yes you know, I love that lighting, so much yes and just vibed it out and like we got really comfortable and there were moments where like I felt every emotion possible like I felt very in tune with everybody that was making that music emotionally and it just it's in the record. You can hear the difference that that's the quality that is in this record that it's, it's in the other two records too, but it's, this one is like, it's, it's there, it's on display. You're, you're in the vibe from the moment the, the, the needle drops. They literally yeah. set it up that way. Cause you listen to the record and it's like it instantly, like it's just them. It sounds like everyone's just hanging out and there's like, you know what I mean? We were, yeah, that, that's dope. And then, like you, we were, uh, sets you up for the. We were uh, definitely. Oh, <laughs> you know? fuck yeah! I didn't know you Cheers, had a drink boys. over there. Cheers, bro. Fuck yeah! Yeah, I saw your makers over there. All right. Oh yeah. His makers. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. The, we, the makers. We gotta bleep it's that our out. Our makers. We, we, we gotta bleep. We gotta bleep out the makers. We're not giving them free press like that. What are you talking about? <laughs> All right. I'm just joking. I saw that generic whiskey you were drinking. Over yeah. There. yeah. What did What did I say uh, yesterday? Like we're sponsoring them at this. Yeah, point. we're sponsoring them at this point. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um. Yeah, man. So uh, going back to your earlier stuff, um, yeah, it's such a departure. The JMO record and the stuff that you do with J- with Jameson Ross, like from the stuff that you write, or at least the stuff that you were writing. I don't know what you're doing now as far as like your new album, but uh, the earlier stuff was just like it very much had a more traditional blues element to it, but also kind of like this Josh Smith kind of stepping out of the box like element as well. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So. Where's where does that inspiration come from, and how do you like how do you put yourself in those different mindsets when you're like playing that kind of music versus playing like you know the more R and B sparing kind of th- approach? Man, uh, it's I just kind of look at like we were talking about earlier. Uh, our favorite players, so many of them have their own unique individual voice, and you hear them in different contexts, and it's you may hear different facets of them, but you still know it's them. Like for me, it's I. I aspire to something like that. I hope that, you know, I have different layers to the way I'm able to play that, you know, for each situation I can just access something different, but still sound like myself. And, uh, so yeah, for that music, for soulful hang, like when I listen to that, that's, that's my first, 
you know, like original recorded music properly that I put out there. Uh, and I was, you know, 22, 23, fresh out of college, new to Atlanta. Um, definitely trying to figure out how do I take all this jazz information I just got at school and then remember that I'm an electric guitar player and I came up like listening to the Almond Brothers and Derek Trucks and Jimmy Herring and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, that's what came out for me at that moment. And I'm, you know, I'm proud of it. I hear it now and I'm like, you sound like a young gun, you know, like, but I'm, I'm still like, I like that guy, you know, it's, he's not all bad. <laughs> no, it was, I mean, it's great playing, man. The performances yeah. are great. The songs are great. Your voice. I literally, I was I, the first song I listened to was uh soulful hang. And it, I literally, I asked Chris, I was like, is that fucking JJ gray? Did you feature JJ gray <laughs> on the album? Cause like your voice sounds just like, it's, I mean, it's just so, so soulful, I guess. And then uh, <laughs> the, uh, and the playing, man, I mean, I'm, I'm a blues guy at heart. That's kind of where I got my start. So, um, yeah. I love, you know, I love the, what you did with it. It was, it was different. You know, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you very much. Yeah. Appreciate that. And, uh, wh what's happening now with you, with the new stuff that you're working on now for you? Is it different or is it like similar to what you were doing back then? Oh man. Uh, well, I'm actually kind of at a point where, so last year, 2021, uh, you know, still kind of in pandemic mode. I was at the house. I wasn't touring a whole bunch and I like basically took eight months and I was like religious about writing every morning. I got into this morning vibe, like wake up, write in a journal, uh, and just whatever idea I had that day, like that's what I recorded. And sometimes it would be a full song. Sometimes it would be just eight bars of something, but I was just trying to like see what was in there and learn to accept whatever idea came out. So I, I think a lot of those ideas I came up with last year, I actually started properly recording the record uh, in August of last year in New Orleans with, uh, with Jamison Ross and Kevin Scott. That's the band on it. Hell yeah. Um, that's fucking dope, man. It's yeah. It's like, I want to get those two guys together. The three of us had never all played together at the same time. We've all played together in different situations, but I was like, I'm just going to get Jameson and Kevin Scott and me and a great engineer, Jason Kingsland and some of these ideas and walk in and see what we can get. And, uh, yeah, I think that music that I started then, uh, I kind of had to shelve some of that because I ended up moving to New York and like doing this whole journey. So it's, it's now been like a year since I've <laughs> worked on it. I'm now getting back to it, but the music is going to sound different now because I'm just like in a different place. I'm like in a totally different environment. So, uh, but last year it was sounding kind of more like songwritery, like I guess for lack of better references, like kind of in the Blake Mills world, like sparing atmospheric, uh, you know, like very close relationship to the guitar. Like, I wanted you to feel like your head was next to my amp and I'm playing very quietly, but very intensely kind of that vibe. Yeah. Songwritery, you know, there's a, uh, some stuff that I noticed on soulful hang that almost kind of sounded like, like Julian Lazish kind of, you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. is that kind of what you're, is that kind of the, the, the like the way yeah. that you're kind of going in that, in that direction? Cause just like the very like chordal, but like kind of, um, you know, melodic at the same time and, and kind of creates like a very like atmospheric, uh, just mood, I guess is the way I would describe it, you know? Yeah. I love that way of playing. Julian Lodge is, you know, I think he's one of the best, you know, he'll be in the history books for me. Like he's uh, for our generation, not sure how old you guys are, but yeah, it's like, yeah, we're on the same age. -ish. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Like he's the dude, you know, one of the dudes that I think we'll be, we'll be talking about for a long time. I, I love the way he plays. 
Um, and he's, yeah, just a master of the instrument itself and his own unique voice. Uh, I like how uh, unadorned his sound is, especially like the last few records where it's just like Telecaster in a room with, with bass and drums. Yep. You know, like I like that. You don't need much else when you can play like that. So I listened to an interview with him where he was talking about how he gets, uh, like how he comes up with his ideas. And basically yeah. he doesn't even like use an amp or anything. He, he starts just a clean, like with not plugging in. And then he plugs into his interface, goes direct in, and then just gets like the tiniest sound that he possibly can. And then yeah. sees if his idea works in that context. And then he's like, yeah. okay, yeah, this, this will work in any context then. And then he starts to put it together after that, which is like a wild concept to me to think about it. So I don't even understand why you do it. Yeah, because it's like... <laughs> I'm sorry, I just don't. Because you want to see if you can make it sound pleasant with that tone. And if you can, then it's going to translate really nicely to anything else that you do, you know? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, you know that you know that you're not hearing the tone when you hear the idea. It's like you're not listening okay, for the tone. You're I listening see, for like I see the me the melody has to be good. The yeah, it's like just take everything away. What is left is the barest version of the idea. Exactly. I, I thought that was, that was work, so brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and it it it's like it, writing on a piano roll in a MIDI file or something. Yeah. And like, oh, this yeah. sounds. This is a banger right here. Very much so. <laughs> and, then, right. and then trying to put some uh, some effects and stuff on it. The Uriam. Absolutely. And if you listen to the way that he plays, it makes sense because. It's like that guy doesn't have to like worry about ever practicing or doing anything like that again. Like <laughs> he, he does though. <laughs> I, I, I know that's why he's so yeah. good because he does, but it's like he, yeah. he, he can just focus on, on like the sonic side of things or like, you know, on the writing side and, and he can really focus on like the details that whereas other people that, you know, don't have his work ethic or maybe just didn't have his, you know, exposure at a younger age. Like they're still focusing on like just getting, getting the playing down, you know? Um, right. And it, it really shows in that kind of thinking, like where he's at, like how, how like elevated he is as a, as an artist, you know? Absolutely. Um, but I've seen, you know, just from everything you read interviews with him, I, I, during the pandemic, I took a couple of like online master classes with him too, just to like, what is he shedding? Like, what is his approach? And, uh, you know, he retains this student, like not student, like, but like, honestly, a humble servant of the music. Like he's just like always entering into it. Like, I don't know anything. What, what do I have today? What can I learn today? And I think that's why he's still inspiring himself and his collaborators and all of us who are listening, uh, you know, well into his career. Like he'll, he's going to keep doing that because of, that engine that he has, like his relationship to like just having a childlike curiosity about, about music. Totally. You know, that That's the vibe. Yeah, man. I love it. Um, so, uh, now that we're, uh, we've just plugged Julian Lodge and everything he's got going on. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, you guys want to do some bottom of the billboard? Sure. Hell yes. So, um, I know we sent you a rundown of the episode. Are you, uh, so, um, are you familiar with how this segment works at all? Uh, is this the news segment? No, no, no. no. So bottom your, of the oh, billboard okay. is basically just like, 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 like a song review section and Oh, that one. All right. Yeah. A song review section without music. Without, yeah. It's great. Right. <laughs> so you don't get it taken off YouTube. Yeah. 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 Try to figure out how we can, uh, change that. But Start a meantime, pirate radio, I guess. Yeah. They'll right. find you though. Yeah, they, they, they do. Very yeah. illegal to felony actually. Yeah. <laughs> what was that movie that, that came out back in like, it was with Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's literally called Pirate Radio. It's called radio. Pirate Radio. Oh, my God. So good. So good. I love yeah, that. Yeah, that, that shit was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, that's what he did. He got out on a boat in international waters. <laughs> yeah. 
And we're like, we're close enough. We could really make this happen in Florida. But, yeah. All right. Yeah. Sorry. I, I love <laughs> that it. was a, that was a tangent. Um. All right, so bottom of the billboard, for those of you who don't know, we uh, pick a song every week to be reviewed. Billy and I don't agree on anything musically well, most we of have, the time. We have both for the past like six or seven episodes. Yeah, it's weird. We found some common ground, and yeah. I gotta tell you, I don't like it. I don't like it either. Yeah, not into it. <laughs> uh, I know that today is not going to be any different, unfortunately, because we both love this artist. Yeah. Um, my pick today is Theo Katzman's You Could Be President. Hold for applause. There we go. All right. And <laughs> so... Um, I love this song. I love Theo Katzman, um, out of everybody and kind of the Wolfpack crew. Uh, you love I, him the most? Uh, I don't know if I would say the most. I th- I'm kind of like a big fanboy for Corey Wong also, just because. Yeah, hundred percent. That was the answer. His, I was wait, waiting for it. I mean, his entire just business practice. I, I just love his, the way his mind works, but Theo Katzman, as far as a songwriter goes, he is such a great writer. I, I don't know, like where like where he gets it from but he is just he just gets it you know yeah and this song is pretty simple i mean it's just uh basic instrumentation uh and then very kind of poppy very catchy but man the lyrics are gold on this on this song um what i don't care what your political affiliation is it doesn't really matter the sense of humor and just like the thinking behind the way he he put this together is so good this is written it's a lot of tongue in cheek stuff yeah yeah but it's it, cool it's yeah it's great um and it's kind of like in a like there's like he somehow he makes there's there's like a measure of like two i think in there where he kind of like cuts off a little early but he somehow makes it flow so like consistently like there's no it's not jarring in any kind of way um, and it's a very like familiar sounding melody, uh, the way he sings it. Uh, and I like the kind of turnaround that he does on the last chorus where I think that the song is in D he goes that, that, uh, F sharp minor G a back to B, but like, it almost sounds like it's modulating, but it's not modulating. You know what I mean? It's, it's like a really like, like clever turnaround. Um, so anyways, that's, uh, you know, I love this song. That's my my perspective on it. What do you think, Bill? I love this album. Like front to back is amazing, but this is like my I have to say this is like my least favorite song about the album. Really? It's just because it's like it's it is very corny and cheesy and the tongue and cheek and everything. Like the lyrics and everything for sure are like very smart and real done. But at the end of the day, like what was he talking about really? I mean, he's you know, it's pretty clear what he's talking no, about. No, I know, but I'm yeah. just trying to say, like, so it is like kind of kind of cheesy. But uh what I do really like in the song is like the uh I don't. I don't want to say like the tone of the guitar, like the timber. I guess you could say of it, uh, of the drums and everything like that. It just sounds like so, like explosive. Yeah. And I, when I always think about this song, whenever I hear it, I mean, it, it sounds like just a rock going down a hill for some reason. I don't know why I think that. Huh. But uh, anyways, uh, I do. I do like this song. Hundred percent makes. I think it should make it. But uh, uh, my favorite song off that album is the the Mona Lisa one. Yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah, it's a good but song. But that one's real sad. Yeah. This. Uh, this one's not. No, this one's not sad at all. I mean, it kind of—it's kind of sad, but it's also like funny at the same time. What do yeah. you think, Rick? Man, I dug this song. I haven't heard the entire record, but I'm—I'm I'm a fan of Theo Katzman. He's a great all-around musician, songwriter, artist. Uh, the tones, like you just said, uh, jumped out at me. They were all very meaty. Yeah, yeah. Dude's a drummer. Dude's a guitar player. It's just like very full. Like I wanted to hear that sonically. Uh, I mean, this is like a perfectly crafted pop song yes. sitting on top of a folk song. Like you could totally play this like a Bob Dylan, like just lyrically it would hold up to that and melodically. That little bar of two that you mentioned, like 
that to me was like, oh, this is a folk song. Like that's like a it could be a bluegrass thing. Totally, you know? yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like sitting under this cage of like you know I could I felt like I could almost see the stems in the daw like <laughs> of this song like I could see the mix you know like oh they chopped the shit up just right yep um, yeah you know I dug it and uh, obviously the uh, he takes a very nice uh, post Derek trucks slide guitar solo which is sick I love how you say post Derek trucks guitar solo because it was like the second Derek trucks kind of like blew up and became relatively mainstream <laughs> it was like everybody right. started playing slide guitar like that. But I mean, Theo kills it though. Oh, he murders it. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. I love him and Blake Mills. That's the two that can like actually do the Derek thing, but like do it their way. Totally really cool. Totally. Yeah. Um, I love the uh, yeah, I love the the, the slide tone and just like the, like the melody he plays. Like Theo never plays. Like he's he's such a great uh, soloist in the sense that he never overplays anything. He's a guy that really focuses, like, what he puts out is his ability to, to be a songwriter and a singer. Yeah. And then when he rips it on guitar, he rips it. But it's never, like, like why did you play that? Or, like, it's too many notes, or it sounds like you're trying to. It's always he's picked everything so perfectly. It's never a bad solo yeah. with him. And this solo is no exception to that. And um, I love how there pro there's probably something happening on, on the production side of it, but just how tight... Uh, the, the 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 you know the rhythm tracks are with everything like there's nothing there's no inconsistency it's all like right there right in the pocket just which, which is typical yeah. with every Wolfpack uh, style production you know I just right. yeah it's right on brand with them I I have to say I, I didn't realize this until just before I came on with you guys but it was reminding me of another song and uh, it definitely gave me Wilco late greats vibe okay know that song I don't know that bum, song bum, no. da, na, na, na. Oh yeah, that's where that that's yeah. where that melody sounds so familiar from. Yeah, I th obviously it's a completely different song, but just that groove. I was like, maybe he was listening to a, a Ghost Is Born that day or something. Oh, this is gonna sound crazy, but the the chorus melody sounds just like a Vacation Bible School song that I learned when I was like ten years old. <laughs> I swear to God, Can you sing it. What are the lyrics? I don't remember. I just I remember it like that melody, like in my head. Da, da. I know it's the it's the song about all the uh, uh, armor of God, like the oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's good. <laughs> I can't I can't remember all the lyrics, but uh, whatever. But I it's, it, it, do, 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 do. yeah, it sounds just like it's a very familiar melody. Like I feel like that's that's it's like a campy. Lot of songs. It's not cheesy. It's campy. I'll say. Yeah, I just I like it. I'm not saying it's bad. No, no, no. I know you're not. But I just, I, I love the line. Just like this whole world is just a private residence and you could be president. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a yeah. good, like, just like yeah. what the, what the way he describes it is like, you just like, we all know that person, right? Like that, that just like walks mm -hmm. around with that sense of entitlement. Like, like that just, you know, it's, 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 it's so, um, I guess human humanizing, uh, to who he's talking about, obviously, but like not in a good way. Like we're not sympathizing. It's just like, it makes it like, Oh yeah, we know this guy. It makes it very, he makes you very aware of like the the kind of like narcissism that, that we're dealing with in the situation, oh, you know. One last caveat: I, I really like the ending, the the tag ending that they do. Yeah, yeah so I'm saying. Gotta have a yeah. good ending to your song. That's to say the turnaround is really is it was a it was a good turnaround. Is that what you mean? The ending at the end, yeah. He, where he, he yeah. does like dude, yeah. Dude. yeah, it gets all punk rocky. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, great song. Makes a playlist, boys. What do you guys think? Thumbs, Thumbs up. up. Hell yes. What do you think, Chris? <laughs> Yeah, we're putting that on there. Yeah, fuck yeah, <laughs> Theo. You ever watch that guy just like, uh, he, 
I said there was a studio thing he did at a, at a radio show or something. And you ever just watch the way he sings, like on a microphone? Oh yeah, like the Madison Square Garden show. He like controlled the whole stadium. It was crazy. Yeah, he's. I don't think that you learn that kind of like mic control or just like that. I, I think that he just instinctively is. That's just in him. Like, what do you mean? Sorry, I, I thought I was thinking of something else. That's like as being like front and center. And no, no, not being front and center. <laughs> just like like he, he, there was just there was a performance. The mic he, control. What do you mean? The mic control. Just like knowing when to back away. Like oh just, yeah, just yeah, how yeah. far. Okay, right. you know how how loud are you sing into it and all that stuff. Like he's got like an inst- like there's the you people who gig for a long time like you like you learn these kinds of things, but you watch him do it and you're like he is a masterful like singer in that respect like. I don't know. It's just watching him perform is just so, um, ins- I don't know, inspiring. I'm, and just- I'm just now learning not how to do the pff and the that. Yeah. I go up with the T's and down with the P's. Or wait, other way around. I don't know. Yeah. You know what I'm talking you're about. You're learning, though, right? though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, P's, P, you go up, T, you go down. Yeah. I think. I can't remember. You're learning. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah. Have you ever watched them do that kind of stuff, Rick? I, I don't think I've seen the Madison Square Garden concert, but I've seen some videos of him singing. Yeah, obviously he's he's a pro. I wonder how much their studio experience too like bleeds over. I think of them as like the Wolfpack crew. I'm not an expert, but uh, they sound very aware of like the studio techniques and like how to work a mic. And I could see him being in the studio like singing on a Neumann or something and like being very careful not to blow out the <laughs> the, the you know cartridge or whatever. Totally, but, yeah. Yeah, he's cool. Maybe I mean maybe he. Uh, went to vacation Bible school and was singing that same song that you were singing. And then he was also watching like Whitney Houston videos because I feel like she had like the best mic control of all time. <laughs> totally. Yeah. He's like, he's like, he's like combining the two experiences. Yeah. Yeah. For Praise sure. the Lord. Yeah. That Praise the Lord. Early nineties. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, all right. So I want to uh, go back and talk about your history a little bit, your background coming from Tallahassee. You've played, uh, you were, you kind of came up in the blue scene. Yeah. Yeah, um, there's a pretty good little blue scene in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, was taking uh, guitar lessons with like one of my biggest mentors, this guy Mississippi James. Uh, he taught a lot of great guitar players coming out of Tallahassee, and uh, he was you know kind of in the local blues scene and introduced me to like the Monday Night Blues Jam at the Pearl Oyster Bar. You know, I'm going there when I'm 12, 13 years old with my dad chaperoning and sitting in with these grizzled old blues guys and just kind of learning the ropes that way. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, it led to just playing local gigs around town, like at a, a spot called Brafferville Blues Club, which is one of my favorite places on earth. Yep. I uh, played there before. It's a great spot, man. Yeah. It's a very, very special place. Been all over the world. Never seen anywhere just like that. It's one room cinder block juke joint yep. in the middle of the woods. Yeah. That band house, like off in the distance in the field. Yeah. The first time I played exactly. there, we were going, we, we were like in a, I was playing with uh, this singer, Nicole Hart. And mm-hmm. uh, we were on a little Florida run that weekend and we were like just driving on the path. And I was like, um, are we going to get murdered out here? Like what's happening? Yeah. Cause it's, it's <laughs> legit in the woods, like in, in the swamp, like there's, there's nothing around. You're driving down that road for a while before you get to the club. Yeah. 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 You're in the woods. You're going up this like dirt road. If it's been raining, your car is sliding all over the place. And then the, woods open up and you're in this giant field yeah. and then you see these like old big live oak trees with Spanish moss hanging down Yep. and then you smell fried catfish because Miss Ernestine's over there and there's a big bonfire and you know it's just like a complete vibe like you're going back in time totally and uh, 
the ghosts are are there for sure. The the ghosts of the blues. It's yeah. <laughs> that, that place has seen some shit for real. It's there, man. I mean, like, and then like you, we go to the band house for whatever, and then like the load in. I remember walking in and just seeing all the, like the plates on the walls with mm-hmm. all the like the the painted uh, blues artists on there, like BB King and Buddy Guy, and like you know, uh, like Little Walter, like all these people, just like hit, hit, like just just an insane history that's like been on that stage there of like these amazing the place must be pretty old yeah it's old yeah yeah it's been there for a long time yeah yeah um definitely who'd you play there with uh well i played there with uh i think the first time i actually played a gig there was with a guy named sarasota slim uh gene hardage he's he's out of sarasota florida he's a great blues man uh it was with him and mississippi james my teacher john babich great organ player who i came up playing with and uh yeah, it was just that's kind of where I learned the ropes of like watching these guys, how to entertain a crowd, like how to do the whole shtick, how to sing, how to like lead a band, you know, just like kind of learning this basic fundamental stuff from these guys who have been doing it their whole lives. Um, so I played there with those guys. I played there with the Lee Boys a good bit. First time I ever met them and Roosevelt like was right there. Um, one time I got to sit in with Hubert Sumlin and Bob Margolin out there. No like, shit. These blues legends. Yeah, like Muddy Waters backing band you know hell yeah uh yeah just all kinds of stuff out there um i used to see sean costello there like used to see oliver wood with his band king johnson hell yeah uh yeah just all kinds of great music still comes through there that place is still going strong very very happy it is yeah i remember for a minute there 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 was a concern that it wasn't gonna uh stay open yeah yeah Yeah, that's awesome i'm glad that i'm glad they're still doing it um, so what's your experience? Like, did you, were you kind of on the blues circuit for a while, like throughout Florida, Florida in general has got a surprisingly robust yeah. blues scene. It's kind of wild. People don't Definitely, think about that. It is wild. Yeah. I didn't really realize that until I left Florida. I was like, there, there's a disproportionate amount of blues vibe <laughs> in Florida. Like I just didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's real. It's everywhere. Um, I w- yeah, I was kind of making some steps out outside of Tallahassee. Uh, I think I played like the Thunder Beach Festival in Panama City, okay. like, stuff like that. Yeah, I think I opened for Travis Tritt and Keith Urban one time. Nice. I was, like, Sixteen. Uh, <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah, I was actually go. I was going up to Birmingham a lot too, because uh, my my dad's side of the family is from there, and uh, I was like doing stuff for the Magic City Blues Society, um, just little gigs, little jam sessions, and stuff like that. Just kind of getting my feet wet. Um, but yeah, around that time, like later into high school, I'm like. I get hip to Derek trucks, you know, and that's like, okay, what is this other stuff? He's blues, but there's this other element. So at that point I became interested in jazz, which kind of led me to make some choices. Right. So yeah. is this, is this a time where you went, decided to go to like FSU and, and pursue that? Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a moment where I heard kind of blue, like the typical story, and uh, I heard Jimmy Cobb's ride cymbal come in and I was like, what is like, I've never heard that. Like it's grooving. It's similar to a shuffle, but it's not. It's like it feels ebullient in a way I've never experienced. It was swing, you know, and then sure enough, I'm in like my high school jazz band, which I, I love everybody that was involved at that. But we were very sad. We were not good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of heart, but like we were not the best. Uh, and one day this, you know, Professor Leon Anderson comes in. He's the head of the jazz program at Florida State. And he was like, all right, let me sit behind the drums and show you guys how to play a swing beat. And he played, he just, ba-dang, dang, 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 dang. And I just, my heart exploded. I was like, I have to know what that's about. This feeling is crazy. 
And uh, he basically recruited me to go to Florida State. I, I was like hell bent on going to Berkeley College of Music because I thought that's where I have to go to get this information. Everybody, yeah. But I'm, <laughs> yeah, everybody thinks that. Yeah. I, no shade to Berkeley. It's like an amazing place too. But I'm just very glad Leon kind of yoinked me and, and made me go to Florida State because I met all my good friends there and, and I got the education I actually really needed. You know? Right, right. So what's the uh, Florida State curriculum like comparatively speaking? Because, I mean... Here in Jacksonville, UNF has got a pretty uh, reputable oh, awesome. program. And then obviously down in Miami, UM has like one of the top programs in the country. And then there's Berkeley, of course. So uh, uh, right. what was the FSU experience like? Man, uh, it was, I would say, pretty closely related to like the Wynton Marsalis school of thinking about jazz. Right. Very focused on the fundamentals and, and the whole history of the music um, going way back. You know, Jelly Roll Morton, Louis Armstrong, all the way to now but mainly focusing like they'll start you with like kenny clark charlie parker you know just like the bebop era and then you work side to side through the history out from there but uh yeah studying with leon rodney jordan marcus roberts the j master incredible pianist and composer uh you know just the whole faculty there bill peterson uh they they were steeped in that kind of traditional jazz uh way of teaching but they weren't uh, limited by it in a way that I think can be unhelpful sometimes. If you're, if you put yourself in a box, like, uh, it can become a prison at, at a certain point. I, I think they have a way of addressing that. That's like, it's very clear. You need to study the whole history of the music, but they, they're never telling you not to do what you want to do and be relevant to who you are today. The way that they do that, honestly, is like you have your classroom time, but then they were like putting us on gigs way before we were ready. Like, I maybe knew like autumn leaves and a blues and a rhythm changes. And he's like, all right, you got this three hour gig. Like, let's go do this. And you're just getting your ass handed to you <laughs> in the best way. Like that's, you know, throw you in the pool before you can swim and just, you have to figure some, something out. So totally. then that, that tells you what you need to practice. Like, Oh, I need to learn tunes. Okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> fuck all this other stuff. I just need to know enough tunes to get through a gig. Cool. Totally. Um, it sounds like a really great jazz school. I don't know why in my head, I was just yeah. imagining what's, what's the worst jazz school. <laughs> um, you know, you've never heard of it before because it's bad. <laughs> just thinking about it, like I'm not. No, I'm, I'm just thinking the way you said, like Berkeley's like got a really good jazz program, and Miami does, and UNF does, and even FSU does too. Yeah, I'm like yeah. What's the worst one though? Yeah, okay, that's an interesting question. Like, I'm what? sorry, that it's totally off the subject. No, no. But I just thought about it. Is, that. It is interesting question. Like, what is the it's worst the, jazz program the in the country? Worst <laughs> jazz program. I, I think any of them can be the worst one if you don't approach it right. No, like, if yeah. you're taking the wrong things from it anybody can like lose their minds in a jazz program totally, sure. totally lose sight of like what you're actually should be doing which is playing music you know totally and that's a, that's a that was always a weird thing man i i uh didn't go to school or anything like that but i did play with guys that did especially when i was first coming up that's just kind of the I don't know how it happened. It was, just, it was just kind of the circle of people that I fell into. And I'm from South Florida. So the guys that I was yeah. playing with, were like, you know, were like UM guys or they went to date, Miami Dade mm -hmm. College or whatever. And, uh, and I, it was always like, well, we've got like cool gigs coming up or we've got like opportunities coming up that we could do. Uh, you know, let's record some stuff. And that, but it was always like, I can't, I have to, you know, I have, you know, schoolwork to do or whatever. I'm just like, then what is the point if you're going to just keep, like you, you can already play. Like you're already an animal on your instrument. Like, like I get the, there's a lot of money involved. You got to like finish your, get your degree and all that stuff. But 
Like it seems a little counterintuitive at a point, you know, am I incorrect about that with a lot of school kids? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a tough balance. I mean, you're, there's a conflict inherently in like trying to put a music like jazz into a collegiate setting because you have to put a rubric on it. You have to, you have to check the boxes and you have to please the, the higher ups at the educational academic level. Right. Um, but the music doesn't cleanly fit into that. It's, it's an oral tradition and it's taught, you know, on the bandstand. That's at least how that's, that's my experience. And I think that's the best way to learn it is by doing it and learning from your elders that way, not necessarily confined to a classroom setting where like, can you name all the modes of melodic minor or whatever? Um, but yeah, on top of that, just doing all the regular academic uh, stuff that you have to do besides the music that can feel like a distraction too. you're like, I know I'm going to do this. Why do I need to take, you know, like general biology or whatever? Like, <laughs> right. You know, you just do whatever you got to do. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing, man. It's, I don't think everybody needs to go to a jazz school, uh, to be able to play that they want to play. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, totally. Totally. And if not, there's always, Open spots at Kenny G's School of Jazz. Yeah, <laughs> That's, is that is that the worst jazz program in no, the country? No, it's a great, great it's jazz great. program. I don't know. Is that real? Does he does he have a school? No, of jazz? I'm just making it. I'm, thinking, I'm trying to I'm still trying to think of the worst jazz program. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Probably at my house. I don't know. I don't know what to uh, say. We're gonna uh, we're gonna book Kenny G on next season to bottom of the bill so he can discuss that statement. Man, that'd be awesome. <laughs> um. All right, so you graduate uh, from FSU. You've got all this experience. Uh, when do you move to Atlanta? I moved there right after graduating from FSU, like August two thousand nine. Oh fuck yeah! yeah. This, okay. Yeah, at this point, uh, I you know I know Jameson. I know like a bunch of my other buddies uh, that went to FSU. We had a really strong crew of people there, and we all kind of fanned out across the country. Like you know, Jameson went to New Orleans. A bunch of people went to New Orleans. A bunch of people went to New York. Um. Some people went to master's programs here and there, but, uh, yeah, for me, Atlanta was, uh, you know, it was, I had never lived anywhere but Tallahassee. Atlanta's like the closest big city to my hometown, four hours away from Tally. I knew maybe four or five people there that were kind of gigging in the jazz scene. So I was like, at least they'll introduce me to people. And, you know, if I need to come home to Tallahassee for gigs to make some money, I can do that. It's a four hour drive, come back on the weekend or whatever. Right. Um, so it was just kind of a good transition point. Plus the whole factor of like Colonel Bruce Hampton was in Atlanta and that whole scene around him, you know, I knew that Derek trucks and, you know, O'Teal and Jimmy Herring and Sype and, you know, all these people I idolized came through Atlanta were in Atlanta. Um, so it had that going for it. And I was like, if I go there, maybe I can keep playing jazz. Maybe I can find a way to make a living as a musician, you know, who knows who I'll meet while I'm there, but it just seemed like the best bet. I thought about New Orleans too, which I adore New Orleans, but it just didn't feel like the right place for me to go um, for whatever reason. But yeah, Atlanta was the vibe, 2009. Hell yeah. And you get to Atlanta and and what are you doing? Are you hitting the jams? Or are you trying to like find like where the, where like the scene is at type thing? There's a lot, yeah, there's a lot going exactly. on there. There's a lot, of, there's a lot of different genres of music. There's like an industry, there's labels, there's, there's, there's things happening on the yeah. ground, you know? There was, but yeah, the first two years I was there, I was definitely eating shit. Like I was not, I didn't see a label. Like I didn't, like yeah. I didn't see industry. It was, you know, I was living in my apartment in Virginia Highlands for like six fifty a month, which would like now seems insane. It's probably like 4,000 for the same apartment. Right. right but, uh, yeah, I was doing that. I was going to, uh, the five spot, which is a, a club used to be a club in uh, little five points yep. right next to variety playhouse. And, uh, 
that's where I met Kevin Scott, who ended up becoming one of my best buddies and, and close collaborators. Uh, he's just kind of a ringleader of a guy. Like he's people just gravitate to him, and he was leading just this insane cast of characters. The music would be the most out there shit ever, and sometimes it was incredible. And sometimes it was the worst shit you've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. And and people just random people would come in. There would just be people off the street. Like you just see weird shit. Like you could do anything. There was complete freedom. Freedom to be great. Freedom to suck. Like whatever you needed to do. And uh, yeah, I had some crazy crazy experiences with that. Uh, so it was pretty pretty much about that. Just like forming those relationships that I knew. Like all right, that's gonna be somebody that I'm with in the long haul. And uh, first two years, but I was like broke as hell. You know, I was just like looking for any gig, playing bar gigs, playing wag- wagon wheel in a bar oh, on yeah. Peachtree Street, you know, just doing the whole thing, trying to survive. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and so, so you, you meet Kevin Scott, you know, I, I met him one time. He was playing yeah. here in Jacksonville, uh, at 1904 music hall with fork, I believe. Yep. Um, what a fucking phenomenal band that is. <laughs> totally, yeah. Yeah, great. And I talked to Ke- Kevin for a few, mo- just a few minutes, but like, what a um, um, it, an embracing person. Like, he was such an easy guy to talk to and seemed like very nice. What was it like, kind of? Because he was probably, uh, obviously, he was already established, right, in the scene. He was, and but he it was a different version of Kevin Scott than than the one you see today. Okay, like, I don't. He wasn't as together. He, he's yeah. a metalhead from Dothan. You know, he did backyard wrestling. You know, backyard brawler wrestling in Dothan. <laughs> yeah, like, all he's right. just like a weird. He's a metalhead. He's like a weirdo. You know, uh, but just a true like one of a kind kind of person with a magnetic personality. I mean, and just doesn't give a fuck what anybody thinks. Like he will tell you the truth to your face. Doesn't care about who's famous. Who's rich, whatever. He'll just, <laughs> he's, I have so much respect for him. Uh, I probably couch my words a little more than I should, but anytime I'm around him, I'm just like, yeah, who fucking cares that that guy's super famous? I don't care. Screw you. Um, right. But, uh, <laughs> he's, he's back then he was not completely fully formed like he is now. I will say. Okay. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I get what you're saying for sure. Yeah. Um, when did you link up with, uh, Larkin Poe and start your kind of, you know, really kind of going down the rabbit hole in your collaborative experiences. Yeah. Um, so that was, uh, fall of 2010. I got a phone call from your boy, Paul Levine. Yep. Uh, I'm still broke as hell. I'm in Atlanta trying to survive at this point. And Paul asked me, uh, he's like, Rick, what are you doing about your ascent to guitar? Goddamn. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what kind of a question is that dude? Like, but basically he was like, what are you doing? Like, where, like, what's your thing? What are you doing now? Like he had tried to book me at Bear Creek and down on the farm. You know, I stupidly did not take him up on those opportunities. I was in my like jazz school bubble at the time and I foolishly turned those down. Probably wasn't ready to do it. But, uh, he called me at this point and he was like, Rick, you need to play Swanee Springfest in March, 2011, uh, so I was like, okay, I'm, I don't have a band. I don't have any songs. I don't have anything, but I will put something together and play this and I will bill it as Rick Lawler band or something. And, uh, I did that. I found, you know, a combination of guys, two guys I knew from Florida state who were living in Atlanta and then uh, a great organ player named Dave Ellington, uh, who was a new Orleans guy moved to Atlanta. That was the soulful hang band. Essentially. That's what that became. Okay. Uh, and I wrote a few songs so we could go play spring fest put together a set, go play the set. And then, uh, somehow 
so Larkin Poe was playing Springfest as well. We had mutual friends. Uh, I had met this guy, Alan Bartram, who's a great bluegrass bass player with the Traveling McCurries and Del McCurry. Yep. I met him playing with the Lee Boys. Alan Bartram knew the Larkin Poe girls and convinced them to like stick around and watch my set after their set. Um, and they dug it and they introduced themselves to me and were super nice. And we traded information and realized, you know, they were in Calhoun, Georgia, an hour north of me. And so we ended up getting together and uh, they essentially brought me on the road for like two years, um, which was super cool. Had a lot of, a lot of fun, great experiences with them. Nice. So what you guys were uh, obviously touring and stuff, were you involved in the writing process with any of that? A little bit. It was mainly the the girls, but I was there for, I would say some arranging, you know, uh, uh, it was actually when I was brought into the band, I was serving as the, uh, fake bass player and guitar player at the same time. Oh, one like, of those scenarios. Do, do, okay. Yeah. yeah. The octave pedal situation, yeah. you know, I think they had a bass player and then th- that guy left and they're like, all right, now you're the bass player and you play guitar. I was like, Oh, all right, cool. So I had to figure that out. So it was mainly just about being a touring musician. And uh, I did record an EP with them, uh, which I don't think is available anymore, but uh, it was, I just was learning a whole bunch. Like those girls work so hard. Um, and their work ethic is insane and they're just relentless about, you know, their craft and mad respect. And yeah, they brought me to Europe, you know, on tour. We got to play with Elvis Costello a good bit. That's and, what I wanted to ask you about next, actually. Yeah. Uh, talk oh, right about on. an artist yeah. that uh, that I grew up with. My parents were huge Elvis Costello fans. Uh, I was yeah. spinning constantly in my house growing up. I hated it back then, um, and I've grown to really appreciate it now as as a musician. I mean, more than appreciate, I really love the music now. You know, so what was you said that it wasn't just opening up on the. You said you collaborated with him too, right? Well, yeah, uh, it was an interesting situation. Uh, the first couple shows that we did, he had his full band. Uh, it was the Imposters, and you know, with Pete Thomas on drums, like fucking amazing rock drummer. They're just a great band. And yeah, we were just kind of doing a typical opening slot. That was in the States. Uh, When we went to Europe with him, we did like five or six shows around Europe. And he was doing a solo tour. So it was just him and a guitar and a piano and a microphone for two or three hours doing a bajillion songs. And everybody in the crowd knew every word. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we we got to open for him doing that. But we were like a full band, you know, a four-piece band. Uh, But he asked us to come out at the end of the night and play... Uh, like a closing set with him, like five or six songs. So, and I'm still the fake bass player in the band at this point. So I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like now I'm Elvis Costello's bass player. And, uh, you know, at least for a few songs and, uh, yeah, like I remember we played, I don't want to go to Chelsea, which is like, yeah, it's off this year's model. It's like one of my favorite songs of his It's so funky. Yep. And, uh, yeah, just playing that bass line with him. And then, you know, what's so funny about peace, love and understanding, yep. like looking over at him, just like rocking his ass off. I, I just, I learned so much just from being up close with him for sure. I mean, what a surreal experience. Like you're yeah. on a stage like that and you're like, how much, how much time did he <laughs> give you before saying that you he's going to uh, have y'all up to play? Uh, we knew. He oh, you actually, knew? Okay. It, all right. It, it was really cool. Like before the tour, he was like, would you guys like to play at the end of the set? Why don't you just go through my catalog oh. and pick a few songs that you want to play? Oh my and we're like, God, wait, dude, he's got 70,000 albums. Like, where do you begin with Elvis Costello? <laughs> so I didn't know much about him other than like radio, radio and a few other songs of his at that point. Yeah. But we went through his whole thing. And just like one night, I remember just going through like iTunes <laughs> and, uh, cause this is before Spotify and like 
finding, oh, that song sounds cool. We should do that one. And we just suggested a bunch of songs. And he was like, all right, cool. Let's do these five. And it was super. That guy is like motivated by nothing but music, it seemed to me. Like he's, he has that same kind of like curiosity about music to this day. Like he's still inspired by it, still striving for something new. Uh, that showed me how you can continue to be a relevant artist and keep renewing your creativity well into your like however many decades he's been doing it like that's what i that's the kind of guy i want to try and be you know for myself that's so cool man and like i can just man i can't even like imagine the level of i, I mean just being on stage with somebody like that who is uh, uh like at least for me so impactful as a as a young as, as a child just because he was constantly being played in my house listening to these like iconic hits you know what i mean and then being on yeah. stage with him and playing those songs with him i would have like not been able to handle that <laughs> i feel like <laughs> i would have just been like yo this is like like my parents would have just had a, like just freaked out from watching you know what i mean that's amazing man it's so cool yeah it was very cool i at the time i was just like just play the song don't forget the chords like yeah. I, I was just kind of keeping my head down i wasn't tr trying to get tripped up on like oh there's 10,000 people or that's a super famous important guy. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, at that point he was, he was very much, he went out of his way to like not put himself on a celebrity pedestal. Like I was in the green room once and I was the only person in there and I heard a knock at the door and I opened the door and it's Elvis Costello wearing a fucking purple suit and holding a tray of cupcakes. Like he personally <laughs> brought us cupcakes <laughs> and I was like, Thanks, Mr. Costello. Like, you know, I love that, man. <laughs> but he's, you know, he like every show he would like give us big hugs and like he was not trying to remove himself from us in any way. He's just like another musician, you know, that we happen to be playing with. So what is super humble? What did you yeah. uh, call him like when you're talking to him? Because like, do you say Mr. Costello? Or, like, do you call him Elvis? Like, I called him Declan McManus, his real name. No, <laughs> no I, I just said, I think Elvis or EC. E like, he would sign his emails like EC. Okay, all right. So, yeah. You I just see, think I'd be totally. sort of like, hey, Elvis, do you want to hang out? I don't know. That just sounds yeah. so weird to say. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's him. That's him. All right. Yeah. So cool, man. I love it. I love it. Um, so then what happens next in your career? You're still living in Atlanta, obviously, at this point. This is pretty early on for you. So what happens next? Yeah. Living in Atlanta. This is now like 20, early 2013. Uh, my time with Larkin Poe was kind of winding down and uh, my... I had been introduced to Colonel Bruce Hampton, you know, just being in Atlanta and basically Bruce, uh, my last gig with Larkin Poe was like on a Wednesday and my first gig with Bruce was the very next night on a Thursday. So it was just like, Oh, this is a shift. <laughs> like, wow. And like, it's all right. One era is over. This is a new era and I'm getting to play with this guy. I've, you know, heard so much about and idolized and the guy who taught all of my heroes, you know, how to, like stop taking themselves too seriously and shit. And right. <laughs> that's what it was. It was like, yeah, Bruce was like, Oh, like Larkin Poe was cool, but it was like, I'm playing songs the same way every night and like executing, um, and improvising a little bit. But with Bruce, it was like, we're going to play an F for 30 minutes and you have the floor, make something happen, play some music, you know? Right. Right. There's such a lesson there that I feel like he, t he teaches everybody and just kind of, um, I mean, artistry, musicianship, but like patience and listening, right? I mean, every, yeah. everybody has that story with him. So is that, was that your experience with him as well? Yeah. I mean, everything you've heard about him, like I, I saw him 
you know, guess people's birthdays. I was going to say, did, did, did he guess your birthday? Did, did he do that? He did. He got the month right, but he didn't get the day. Ah. And he was just like, kind of like, oh, okay. Like he did. He didn't get it right a hundred percent of the time. But yeah, he when he knew he would be like, you over there, November thirteenth, and then somebody would just be like, what? <laughs> like, he, who is this crazy old guy? Like, you know, <laughs> he, he said there's but, an interview with him where, or not with him. I think maybe it was O'Teal. I think O'Teal was on Krasno's podcast, I think. And he was, yeah. he was saying that, that Colonel Bruce could guess at least relative birthdays by yeah. uh, the gap in your teeth or something like that. <laughs> That's the guy's yeah. shit. What the hell? Yeah. Or at least never, guess your sign. I never knew that. Yeah. <laughs> he would occasionally ask like, do they have nice teeth? Like he would ask about people's <laughs> teeth. <occasionally>. Like, <laughs> I love it. Or like uh, he told uh, uh, Derek Trucks that he was um, he wasn't he wasn't an alien. He was uh, terrestrial with a little bit extra. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that Derek good. was, or that or that Bruce that, was. That, that yeah. Bruce was. Yeah, that Bru- Bruce. Yeah. Like he would describe that Bruce Hampton would describe himself as that. Like, I'm not an alien, but I'm, he said, I'm terrestrial, but with a little bit extra. <laughs> he definitely had something extra, dude. Like I, I'm not a very superstitious person, but I, I saw him do shit that you can't explain. Yeah. Otherwise. I could, I mean, listen, bro, there's no way that I saw Colonel Bruce at funky biscuit back in the day. Uh, uh, this must've been 2013 or something. I saw him. I, I was probably there. You, I think I was on that gig. Yeah. <laughs> you you might've been there, man. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Was you, Albert Castilla playing that yes, night too? Yes, he like was. A hundred. I was there. No fucking way, bro. That's so <laughs> yep. wild. I remember sitting there that night and, and like, it was a first time I, I discovered who I, I was only there. Cause I know Albert really well, you know? And so yeah. I was only there cause I knew he was going to be playing and then I heard about Colonel Bruce, and I was like, who the fuck is this Colonel Bruce guy? And I was like, he's playing with all these great musicians. And then, like, I'm, I'm sitting there watching him, I'm, uh, watching the band. I'm like, this band is amazing. Why is he up there? <laughs> you know what I mean? no, and this is before I had any experience with who he was. You know what I mean? Right. So there's just, there's a thing where you're like, in order to pull together the talent that he did, there had to be something else going on there because he wasn't an extraordinary musician as a player. He knew something that people didn't know, but it wasn't the technical ability. You know what I mean? He, uh, he, well, I would push back on that a little bit. Uh, he was an extraordinary musician, like one night out of every six or seven. <laughs> <Okay>. like, <laughs> he would play some shit on the guitar that i Frank Zappa couldn't do. Like he just, he would do something that is like, how is that possible? Like, he would just make people scream. But I would say the thing that you're talking about that he had, um, he would refer to as putting the devil in the room. Like, put the devil in the room. Or he would also call it threat of vomit. Threat of vomit. <laughs> threat of vomit. There were five T's, okay? Like, we've all heard what? about taste, time, tone, touch. And then the fifth T is threat of vomit and what it's, is that it's not, it's not vomit it's just like the threat the feeling that something could go horribly wrong that you're walking on a ledge and you're about to fall off like you're somebody's gonna like lose their mind at any moment but you're kind of like it's not all the way there it's the threat of vomit i love that so much i don't know yeah. a bunch about colonel bruce at all and just this, everything you just said about him like this i gotta go check him out now there, for sure there's there's He's, a reason why it's a religion dude it's a religion for sure literally yeah. man there's a reason why there's like like people talk about the the school of colonel bruce you know this is like yeah like obviously jimmy hearing and 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 Derek trucks and like the just the the the, the circle of influence that this guy had there was a, there was 
there was a, a, a train of thought there that people just didn't totally understand, which probably made him so magnifying as a person. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And it, just his wealth of knowledge on music is insane. I listened to, to, to him talk about the stuff he listened to. And then you listen to like the guys that kind of came up under him and what they listened to. I'm just like, how do you have the time to internalize so much music? But at the end of the day, that's what it's all about to them. It's just internalizing all of it and just kind of making sense in your own way yeah. with it, you know? I feel like anyways. Definitely. He he would listen across genre um, for some, like whatever he would define as truth. Like he would never say truth with a capital T, but like he was listening for some element of like humanity, I think is how I would describe it. Uh, and he, you know, worshiped the greats of all genres. Like if you want to know why Derek Trucks was playing Indian ragas, it's Colonel Bruce. It was like, check out Ali Akbar Khan. Right. You know? Um, or yeah, like gave him his first Coltrane CD or whatever. So this, he did have that impact and he knew about all kinds of music. I, I don't think he liked a ton of modern pop music necessarily. He would be like, Bruno Mars, is he good? Like, yeah. he was just kind of like, you know, like kind of out of that. But, uh, he had very keen ears. He could tell when somebody was like playing from an honest place. I think I, I like, I like that he didn't like, like, you know, your, your, uh, your perception of him would be that he would ask if he's good at least because there's so many guys yeah. from that era that would just be like Bruno Mars that that's shit which we all know yeah. that's not true right but like right. but like that Colonel Bruce would at least have the courtesy because the guy is, yeah. is wildly successful to be like, is he good? At least ask the question. You know what I mean? <laughs> he did, yeah, he, he at least had the pretense of an open mind. Even if you knew he was like, he was not digging it, he would just be like, are they good? I can't tell. I, can't. You know, is, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. They must be good. People like him, but I just can't tell. I love yeah, that like, so much, man. And it's wild that you yeah. were playing that gig. I mean, like, it might just be because you mentioned it, but I can like picture the stage now and kind, Me too, yeah. and kind of like see, were you playing like a brown guitar or something at that time? I was probably, well. Maybe a telly or something. I Yeah, I, my telly is kind of my go-to. I was definitely playing it with him, but Bruce actually wore me down. Uh, like I went through a progression of different guitars because like when I started, I was like, oh, I got the Bruce gig. I need to play like Jimmy Herring. And I was playing loud. And then this is a different era of Bruce. It's like he was not going to tolerate that shit. He barely tolerated Jimmy back in the day. <laughs> That's uh, so funny. Which Jimmy loves to talk about. But uh, but yeah, like basically I got progressively quieter. Like I w would start playing my arch top jazz guitar, you know, and try to be like polite in that way. And then eventually I, it got to the point at the end of my run with him where I was playing an acoustic guitar through a, like a five watt silver tone amp. And you could barely <laughs> hear me. And he was constantly asking me to turn up. No like, shit. Yeah, he's just, and he would like point to his vocal cords and be like, I got one watt. I got, <laughs> I got one watt. <laughs> These subwoofers are killing me. I hate it. Like, you know. That's so funny, bro. Yeah, yeah, so I'm not sure what guitar I was playing. Probably the telly. Yeah, it's, uh, that's that's the, 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 the picture that I'm seeing. I know he was playing an SG for sure. I remember yeah. that. And then there was a pedal steel player up there with you guys and uh, a few other... Uh, obviously bass. I can't remember who was playing bass or drums on that gig, but yeah, that's wild that you were there, man. That was, that the, the Funky Biscuit was my, my local spot back then. I'd go there to the Monday night jams every single week yeah. and just like get my ass kicked by those guys because it was always like, just, you know, I, I was playing, I was playing guitar for this, this band called the Rock and Jake band at the time mm -hmm. and we were on the road a lot and when I'd come home, 
I'd always be talking about how I wanted to start my own band and I'd get up to the jam and they'd make me sing. And I was like, I don't want to sing. I just want to play guitar. They'd be like, if you want to run a band, you got to sing. So get up here and sing. I'm like, motherfuckers, bro. Uh, I would have to get up go. there and do the whole thing and like lead yeah. a band of like guys in their 60s. They've been doing it for 40 years. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's just like, this is I wish I could have fun. seen that. So bad. Uh, I was, and I was, <laughs> it's, it's, it's wild because like we're around the same age and this is like 2013, 2014 that I'm talking about. And yeah. And I was objectively terrible at this time. Like I was not a good player. I didn't go to school. I, I, I was so bad. I've played yeah. a lot of catch up since then. So I will say that I am a lot better now, but it's just wild to see like somebody like you, who's like my age basically. And you being where you were at that time, like where I was at that time. It's just like, it's, it's just so crazy. Everyone has like their journeys, you know, it's just so wild to me, man. Uh, definitely I'm not even close to what you are like now even but like I could at least like you know I'm a professional musician so gotta play a lot of ketchup <laughs> so you can cut the mustard yeah yeah is that a saying in Kentucky I just made it up yeah that's a good one yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna write that down yeah. we're all just trying to cut the mustard every day yeah. wake up and cut the mustard yeah. <laughs> um wild man I love that so when did you get so when did you link up with Jimmy Hearing is this around the time you were with Colonel Bruce uh, there was actually a, a gap of quite a few years. I, I wrapped up with Bruce in like 20 middle of 2014. Um, and then after that, I was like, I didn't have a regular like road gig. Like I, bef I had Bruce for a year and a half. And before that I had Larkin Poe for like two years. And at this point it's like, I'm just kind of a free agent. And I was like, all right, what am I doing? So I started working with all these people in the Atlanta scene. Um, I was, playing a lot at this place called Elliott Street Pub in Castleberry Hill neighborhood of Atlanta, um, which is a very cool dive bar. Uh, and the owners really care about music and gave us this, you know, really cool basement to play in basically. And Kevin had started the jam up there and, uh, we started Kevin and myself and Mark Rodabaugh, great drummer, uh, started playing as a trio, just kind of pick up gigs and kind of free improvise stuff. Some of my tunes and, uh, we would just play, and out of that, we formed this band called King Baby, um, which later we added Matt Slocum to, this incredible organ player who had played with Jimmy and, and Susan Tedeschi and uh, all these great people. Uh, so that kind of became a band around this time. Uh, and a couple of other original projects I got involved in around 2014. Uh, but long story short, King Baby developed. Um, we got called to headline a jazz festival in Bangladesh of all places yeah. we had no, never played anywhere but Elliott Street Pub for like 12 <laughs> people and then Matt Slocum calls he's like hey man do you want to go to Bangladesh next month and I was like you're all right what are you actually calling about he's like bro we're going John McLaughlin's headlining and so are we I was like what what the fuck yeah so we went to Bangladesh and yeah out of that it was like all right I guess we have to be a real band now <laughs> we're headlining a jazz festival that's so the other wild. side of the world how did that yeah. happen though how'd you guys get that call it was through uh, Shovik Duta. He is uh, that guy is uh, an incredible person on the business side of music who loves music passionately, uh, guitar-based music, progressive music. Uh, he's behind the Abstract Logics label, so Jimmy Herring's recorded on that. Wayne Krantz, Oz Noy, oh, okay. um, Sean Lane. He was you know tight with Sean Lane. Hell yeah, uh, R.I.P. Yeah, so he he's yeah R.I.P. for sure, uh, but. Yeah, basically Shovik called Matt. So so Shovik is John McLaughlin's manager as well. And uh, 
I guess he needed to fill, they wanted an American blues act and probably somebody canceled at the last minute and he was like, shit, I got to put something together Yeah, and called Slocum and, and we did it, you know? That's fucking awesome, man. Um, so through this experience, I guess that must've been how you met Jimmy then. Well, he, we ended up making a record with that band and then years later, like I had met Jimmy a couple of times. I knew people who knew him. Uh, I knew his daughter and, and Dwayne Trucks, you know, just from being in the Atlanta music community. But I hadn't actually like chilled with Jimmy properly until after the King Baby record comes out. And that's like 2017. And I went to go see him at Terminal West. And uh, he surprisingly, he like I was hanging out uh, after the show and he found me and he was like, Rick, I'm Jimmy. And I was like, I know. And he's <laughs> like, I, I heard king baby and it's awesome and i love the songs and i'd love to play with you guys like i thought he was like just saying nice stuff but i was you know just kind of flabbergasted that my hero knew who i was basically of course yeah man uh but yeah like years later like i guess it was 2018 by the time somebody told me like hey you might get a text from somebody today and it's it'll be real so uh at that point i got a text that was like hey rick this is jimmy herring uh love the way you play and, you know, like wanted to see if you'd be interested in playing sometime, you know, no pressure. <laughs> he was like nervous about asking me or something. I was like, what the hell are you? Like, <laughs> so it's like you're all time. Like Michael Jordan calls you and is like, I want to play a game of pickup basketball with you, but no pressure. Yeah. Yeah. When you're free. Uh, yeah. When you're free. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. I can't imagine that, man. Like I've, I'm such a, like, yeah, he to me is like, the goat, him and like Derek Trucks, obviously are just like yeah. the guys that are untouchable. I don't understand how somebody can be in like can do what he does in widespread, but then also like just be this ridiculous jazz fusion guy, but then also be like an insane like country chicken picker, and then like he just does everything. He he not he can't turn it off. It seems like yeah, he's voracious, and he's he's the perfect example of what we were talking about earlier, which is being able to play any style and you know exactly who it is and he has a voice, you know, um, he's just that he is as good as it, it is possible to be like it, he is maxed out yeah. <laughs> the, the possibilities of the guitar in his way. Like it, it, you can't get better than Jimmy Herring. You just get different. Like he is just one of the greats of all time. Exa- exactly. And like, so humble about it too. It seems like he's the most, yeah, he's just like, when pe- I've seen interviews with him where he's talking about like his guitar setup or like, you know, whatever. And he's just like explaining like low Korean modes or like super low Korean modes and yeah. j- just so like not snobby about it. He's like, I guess you can kind of do this, but then you can also kind of do this. Like, like he's still learning it in the process of like teaching it type shit. Yeah. And you're like, God damn, man. Like how, like, you know that you could just like shred over this stuff without thinking about it. But like, you're so still intrigued about how it all works while you're explaining it. It's just so cool to me. You know, I love that. He's pushing himself all the time. Like he's practicing. He practices more than probably anybody I know. He stays up all night and like, you know, eats cereal and like shreds guitar. <laughs> like cereal. What's the cereal? <laughs> like, cereal that he's eating? I've, I'm not, I'm not exactly <laughs> yeah. sure. I don't, don't quote me, but we definitely had a lot of cereal on the bus and, uh, and yeah, like he loves a Jimmy John's veggie sub and yeah, yeah. I probably shouldn't be spilling the details, but, uh, he's got his things that he likes, but he, uh, musically he's like before the gig, before sound check, he's walking around the venue, just like not just warming up, but like really trying to play something that, like he's getting to some shit and every night he's pushing himself. He thinks about every detail. 
Um, he really cares. It's not an accident that he sounds like that. I mean, he, by all rights, he could have stopped practicing years ago, but he has not. And he has continued to get better. <laughs> just an inspiration. That's how you do it. You know, what's it like working with him in that capacity? Did you feel like you were like you were even allowed to have an opinion on anything musically or like how'd that work? No, the opposite. It was completely the opposite. Like he put me and the other guys in the band in the driver's seat. Like in a way, I think he wanted us to be a band that he could like be the guitar player in. Right. You know, at least for part wow. of the set. Like he he can obviously better than anybody, like be the focus of attention and play all the melodies for all the songs. But for him, I think it you know, he misses that ability to just like be the guitar player on a song. So that was the idea with this band where I would come in and sing and then play second guitar. Uh, you know, a lot of his records too have like multiple guitar tracks and he wouldn't play some of the songs live because he would, he was missing the second guitar part, some of the harmonies and, and just rhythm parts. So he wanted a second guitar and then he wanted to have some vocal music. And I think he heard the King baby record and he's like, I can just kind of plug myself into like that model, you know, plus, Kevin Scott was already in Jimmy's band and Matt Slocum at that point. So it was just kind of a natural thing. But yeah, he's, I mean, he wants to know everybody's opinion. Like everybody has input, you know, he wants to know what we're listening to. He wants to know, like, he's the most open guy, the least precious, you know, about having it his way. Like he's just like, he, it could not be cooler or easier to play with him. He's just so giving, you know, it's crazy. That's awesome, man. Um, it's so refreshing to hear about guys at that level that are so willing to explore different ideas creatively because you get to that point and sometimes I can imagine that people feel like they've just got it figured out and there's not really yeah. like a room for debate on stuff, but it's cool just to be able to kind of like take the, take, let someone else take the wheel and just kind of, well, yeah, I mean, maybe it's not my idea, but let's kind of see where it goes type thing, you know? Right. Yeah, that's how he is. He's a true collaborator. I mean, I mean, he's a leader too. It's like you can't play with a guy like that and not just like follow the gravity of what he's doing. But uh, it's still his show. But like, he gives us as much freedom as is possible to do. You know, you're, we're, it's a band. It's a real band. That's awesome, man. What's coming up with uh, with that project? You guys got anything on the books? We have a text thread a mile long. Yeah. Where we're <laughs> just like, hey, what are you guys doing? Sending each other stupid jokes and stuff. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, we're we're always talking about when can we play. I think Jimmy's been busy with Panic, and they're they've been doing a lot of their makeup dates from 2020, 2021. Uh, so they're I think towards the end of this year they're kind of like wrapping up all those makeup dates. So next year I'm hopeful there will be an opportunity. Uh, I saw Jimmy a couple weeks ago. I was at the uh, Panic show at the Fox Theater in Atlanta and got to chill with him a little bit. And uh, yeah, we were definitely talking about next year sometime. So fingers crossed. Let you guys know. Hell yeah, man. As soon as I know. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, and what kind of, what kind of dates are you guys doing? Like you guys doing like theater dates or you guys doing like club dates? What, what, what are the shows looking like? Oh, uh, well there, nothing's booked right now. Um, but what we did in 2019, the last time we played was, uh, you know, some theaters, some smaller clubs. And then, uh, we went to Japan and played like the blue note and the cotton club in Tokyo, uh, which was cool. But, uh, yeah, I think it would probably be something similar next time around. Some of the hometown venues. I mean, we love to play uh, Atlanta and Georgia and, you know, just all the places we're all from. I got to play in Tallahassee with Jimmy. That kind of was like one of the best nights of my life. I can yeah, imagine, man. man. Yeah. Where'd you guys yeah. play at? The Moon. 
The Moon is that uh, like a theater there? It's yeah, it's like a like an eight hundred cap room. It's like one of the only mid size venues you can play in Tallahassee before you like play the Civic Center or something. And it's uh, it's been there forever. Like I grew up. The first time I ever heard Derek Trucks was there. I was like twelve or something, uh, and heard Susan Tedeschi there. Heard Little Feet. Heard you know Eric Johnson. All these people. Hell yeah. The Moon. So I, yeah, I grew up like going to concerts there and. Uh, yeah, it was amazing to play that venue and then see all my hometown people out there and then to get to play this music with my hero was and like Jimmy Herring talked to my dad about fishing for an hour after the show. It was just like all right. <laughs> That's cool. wild, man. So yeah. cool. So cool. I almost feel like the the quality of a very great musician is to be down to earth at this point. It yeah. seems like everybody that you've talked about so far, all these like big names and everything like that, they're all kind of the same where like all they do is practice and all they are just normal people. That's, I mean, I've been extraordinarily lucky that I've gotten to be around these people. There might be other people I've run into contact with that I wouldn't be speaking <laughs> of in the same terms. Oh, yeah. Not saying that's how it is all across the name board. Em. Yeah, in, no, name them. No. <laughs> name names. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that, that's what I'm trying to say, though. Like, does that, that doesn't yeah. make them a great musician being a dick, right? No, not at all. So, yeah, that maybe just, you know, love your neighbor, as the Lord said. Yeah. Yeah. Are you talking to me? No, oh. I'm talking to both of you and everyone who's listening. Yeah, no, no, for sure, for sure. Words I think of wisdom. There's definitely something to be taken away from that. I'm curious about how many artists at like the pop level are operating under that same kind of um, understanding. I doubt that they really have the ability to operate in that kind of uh, with that kind of freedom or like leeway to say, "Hey, band, take the lead." You know, that's just not how it works when no, when your name no. is like you know the the thing. But uh, at that level anyways, but I'm curious to know how many people try to adopt that humility at that level, you know, as I feel like it's got to translate to the, to the performance and and just the music as a whole, you know. But then again, I don't know. I feel like as much as I can appreciate the pop stuff, we talk about it a lot in the podcast, you know, I have deep appreciation for the production stuff on the on pop music and how they yeah. they run their enterprises but to me, it almost seems like the music is like just manufactured in a factory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think, and, and to no offense to Jimmy Herring or anybody that we've talked about, but they're they're still not at the at the top of the like pop world. At no, all. of course not. I, no. We could say that, right? They, and I, I think, don't think they would they would want to be. And, yeah, I, yeah. And, and I'm not even trying to say that they ever couldn't, but they yeah. probably don't want to be. And I think that 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 difference between those two worlds, like. What what you're seeing when you listen to or when you see Jimmy Herring or Derek Trucks is you're seeing like one of the greats, and he's great because he's not one of those pop yeah, artists. Yeah, he's, he's a student. I don't of know the how music. to put it into words as much as I'm trying to say, but that that level, that's the best level. Students of, like constant students of the music. It, it never stops being about exactly. the music. It's always in service to the art form. Whereas you know at the pop level, it's you know, it, it clearly, and this is, I, I don't want to like speculate, but it's, it's clearly not about service of the music. It's just not, you know, and there's an art form in what they do a hundred percent. You know what I mean? Like there's an art form to figuring out yeah. the, the equation that sells, that it creates a hit record right at that level, but it's clearly never in service of the music it's in service of the fans. Right. And that's a different thing. I feel like. I think there's some murky, like gray areas in there. I think generally, yeah. Like the two poles are somewhat like that but i think at the in the pop world there can definitely be people who that is their craft they are students of like 
they've studied all the Motown records and all the Beatles records. Sure. All the the hit music, all the 80s, new wave shit, like whatever it is. Uh, And they just are an encyclopedia of like production techniques, song forms and arrangement and all that stuff, you know. On the production side, 100%. It's just more like the artist side of it. the business, yeah. Yeah, you know, like you get to like, you listen to like Katy Perry uh, talk or like, you know, and and like this isn't like a jab at anybody, but I've heard interviews with her and like, you know, other artists at that level and like you hear them speak and it's, it's not, they're not thinking about music really. I mean, because it's, it's really like, it's about the enterprise as a whole and that's cool. It's got its own thing and they're obviously extraordinarily talented people, but that's why I say like, like the the production side of the pop music is where I'm very, is where I'm fascinated by because those people are definitely like you talk, like you listen to some interviews with those people, like Jeff Basker or something. And you're like, Oh, this guy knows his shit like this. He's in service of the music and the production and somehow has found the formula to also like make hit records, you know? And that's cool too. But something about the authenticity with like in the jam world, uh, that just kind of permeates, I think a different, uh, side of the industry that, that's more valuable artistically. I don't know. You know, I I certainly think that's more, yeah. In the, uh, the jam community that there is more of a premium placed on that. But I think there's elements of a pop mentality in the jam community in some places that would be antithetical to what you're talking about. Totally. And, and vice versa, you know, like elements of real authenticity, you might call it. I think that's a tricky word to use, but elements of that in the pop world, like you've described. Cause like at the Katy Perry level, I look at that as like entertainment and music is one facet of it, but it's really a visual thing. It's a, experiential thing it's like all these other like you're buying into a world you know that they've created and that is it's like a larger art form in a way and music is just one part of it totally it's the excuse but it's like this whole other idea that you're buying the the jam world does that too like the jam world definitely borrows from pop mentality business wise and like we're creating a world you know like what is i'm not comparing the grateful dead to Katy perry but like that's a world that people live in. Like yeah. I, my life is ensconced by this band's lore and music and not just the music, but the people who are in the band and their personal lives and the mystique around them. Like, you know, we have that, a pop mentality towards jam music too. Like it's, Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, man, it's 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 cool just to see how it all operates at that level, you know, just like the differences yeah. where they focus and that kind of thing, you know, it's very cool. Right. Um, you guys want to hit some uh, bottom line news? Bottom line news, yeah. Let's do it. I I love hearing your story, dude. It's just kept on, it's just like this giant arc. It felt like I was <laughs> listening to like someone describe a movie or something. Literally, like, I just like <laughs> long winded. Not long winded yeah. at all. It was yeah. like like very tight. I liked it. Yeah, I'm a no, tight plot guy. Cool. Yeah, no, I, I can I can literally sit here and talk to for hours, especially on on some of this, uh, like the, on the music and the entertainment side of it. I would love to get more of yeah. your perspective on all that stuff. It's so cool. Um, but yeah, bottom line news. Let's let's fucking do it. Let's do it. So today we're talking about uh, vinyl record sales and how they've gone up drastically in the last couple of years. Breaking news. Um, it's uh, well, a slow news day. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. It has been a slow news week as yeah. far as what's happened in the entertainment industry. How's Post Malone doing? He broke his ribs, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, all right. I'm um, just messing around. I'm messing around. Let's get back to the, the real stuff. Yeah, uh, but either way, I think it's still an interesting topic because it's this kind of. I feel like, you know, first off, like like there's obviously 
something happening in the ether with vinyl. There's like a resurgence as things typically happen in entertainment and just across the board with, with culture, things are, are cyclical. So it's kind of making a resurgence now. Um, I'm curious as to why it's happening. Maybe there's kind of like a mystique about the vinyl sound and like not being able to capture that in uh, the streaming side of things, but it's the, but it's growing drastically, even uh, with the wait times on some of the stuff like being nine months to a year, people are still ordering, they don't care. So I think it's kind of wild that that's happening. And it also puts a lot more money in the pockets of the artists and uh, the people that are actually investing into the music versus the streaming stuff, which is making, you know, leaps in how they're paying their artists out, but still not where it needs to be. Do you and have it uh, pulled up, Chris, the article? Not that we need to see it or anything like that, but the numbers on how how much a uh, uh, record sales did last year versus uh, Spotify streaming sales. This is what I, I, I agree that it is going up a lot, but it's not even putting a dent in, in Spotify. Not Spotify, but just streaming. You know what I mean? It was something like, what, 550 million, something like that? For vinyl versus for vinyl like seven versus billion. like eight billion dollars for Spotify. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, yeah. yeah, it was five seventy, uh, so, five hundred seventy million. So and, and and they're both going up, and obviously, like you know, more people are being born, but they're not listening to, they're not buying records. <laughs> the babies aren't. But I'm trying to say this is like, yeah, it is very interesting that that is coming back. Uh, but I I think that what it comes down to is that everybody has music for ten dollars a month. Yeah. So they got more money to spend on the actual physical copies of stuff. That's the only reason I can think of. I I and it seems like uh, you're not gonna ever listen to a record in your car ever. You're only gonna be able to listen at home. And most people, I'm pretty sure they just buy it and never listen to it. Yeah. Never maybe. put it on. Maybe put it on one time. Well, so that's it. It's a standalone piece of merchandise it's, or art. That's, and that's know? all it is at the end of the day. Is It is. It's a merchandise. Have you heard about this, Rick? Are you familiar with this phenomena happening right now? Yeah, I, w- I would say I'm a participant in that phenomena. You know, like it, I definitely love buying vinyl records. I've been, yeah, probably the last 10, 12 years trying to amass a collection. Um, but I see it as like they both exist. I'm, I'm happy to hear that vinyl sales are continuing to go up. You know, streaming, I kind of just like... You know, as a songwriter, I'm like, I look at my BMI statements. I'm like, Spotify is like point zero zero two cents. <laughs> like it's, it's like nothing. So uh, I just don't even think about streaming it, at least at the level I'm at. You know, which is not a huge hit pop songwriter. Uh, vinyl, yeah, I love the the tactile experience. I, you know, just all the stuff people love about vinyl. You put the thing on, you're setting your intention to like listen to some music. Hopefully, you focus on it a little bit more than you would if you just you know, put something on shuffle on Spotify or whatever. And I love that aspect of it. And uh, sonically you can make an argument. It sounds better. It doesn't, it's warmer, whatever, you know, I think anybody's entitled to their opinion. Uh, but I think it's good. If somebody wants to buy vinyl, how, why are, whatever reason they're doing it for just to support an artist, like a smaller artist, I want to, you know, pay 40 bucks for like a nice gatefold thing and like be able to look at the lyrics and pictures and stuff like I think that's great. I mean, yeah, I, I play with an artist named Dan Nettles. He's got a band called Kenosha Kid. And uh, he just did this crazy vinyl project. Uh, it's a three-album set. And he, like, personally hand-designed all the album covers and included all these liner notes and just, like, made it a very special thing. And uh, 
you know, I, I like to experience music that way. I hope more people will continue to do that. Streaming, I mean, fuck Daniel Eck, fuck Spotify. <laughs> like, I need you, but also fuck you. Yeah. You know, I, whatever. Yeah. I totally, yeah, I, I totally get that for sure. And the, uh, um, I think it's great because it's, again, putting the art, putting money back in the artist's pocket, but there's also like the experience of like, going to the record store and like sifting through and seeing what's yeah. out there. And every one of those albums right. that you have, you know where you were when you bought it. It's memory. It's yeah. a snapshot of your life. Yeah. And I also, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say like, I, I had to like defend myself because I was buying these records. I'm not trying to tell I was doing it before anybody else. Like it's the records have been around since this, you know, forties, twenties yeah. even. But I was like, I was in high school, uh, middle school buying, uh, records and people were like, why aren't you listening to CDs? Like that's for like, old people and stuff like that. I'm like, cause it's cool. I get to hold it. Look how big the Almart is. You can like really look at it. And yeah. I don't know. It's not a hard sell for me. No, totally. Either, uh, at all. I think, I think like the numbers also, even though they're, they're obviously nowhere near what uh streaming numbers are. It's just it, the it's coming back. Yeah. Cause the thing is it, it's up something like 70% from its previous sales, like even mm. within the last five years or something. Bring back the record club deals like yeah they come in the mail i used to love i those, bet they, uh, they they have it somewhere or whatever yeah spotify should do there. that send records out <laughs> i'm just trying to make it mad they just start to <laughs> they just own all like the, the 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 means of production on record or on like vinyl now and they just start like paying artists out like like point zero cents or point like one like zero one cent per record sale now oh my god <laughs> it'd be awful it wouldn't surprise me i mean they're they're basically like an audio company now like they were never a music company but now it's just like um i mean no offense but if you're gonna like pay podcast people the same as like somebody that spent bajillions of dollars to make like one song and master it and like spend all this money on it that's just not this like you're putting them on the same platform as there's just something inequitable about that to me. And I, I'm a huge purveyor of podcasts too, but uh, yeah, it's just, they're not trying to help musicians. They're not a music company. The label, the major labels are in bed with Spotify. They have market share. Totally. You know, their, their interest is not to help songwriters or the people who make the whole thing go, you know, somebody's like masterpiece that they spent their whole lives on is essentially worth the same in Spotify's eyes as, you know, like whatever dumb story I just told on this podcast. <laughs> like, no, totally. I mean, we're we're on both sides of it. We spent twenty thousand yeah. dollars on our last album. You know what I mean? Like, right. like, like out of our own pockets. You know, so it's yeah. like, yeah. And we're we haven't you know the struggle. Yeah, we haven't seen a dime out of out of. I mean, whatever. Right. Like, yeah, a cup like a couple of dimes we've seen out of it. Wait, you know what I mean? Wait, but like, wait for that one thousand and first play. So yeah, that we can get, that, oh, yeah. get rid of that carrot. Yeah, <laughs> a little. Yeah. yeah, that's so insulting. I know. Yeah, yeah it really is. <laughs> Less than a thousand. We don't even bother to count it. No. Yeah. I want to see somebody with sixteen plays. Yeah, man. yeah. Let me like be the seventeenth play. I would feel good about. Literally, that. as a listener, it's like, yeah, your contribution. Like, what contribution was I to this play? How many plays yeah. did I have on it? You know what I mean? Totally. Um, so yeah, we get it, man. I mean, it takes, we, we do like, we, we do how many episodes per, we do like 12 episodes per season. Oh, the podcast, and we, yeah. we pump these things out. We have a production team that helps us as well. Yeah. But like, a lot of work goes into this. But like yeah, our sure. last album, which was what, uh, seven, we did seven songs on the EP. Yeah. That, that took us, uh, two years to put out almost yeah. because of the pandemic and all that shit. So yeah, totally. It's a, it's a whole, it's a mind fuck about how the whole thing works, honestly. Um, yeah. So I'm stoked to hear record sales are going up. I haven't invested in any vinyl because they're, they're, it's too much money, and we don't sell enough tickets to to justify <laughs> no. uh, having. Uh, you have to, yeah, you have to buy it in such huge 
bulk. And then on top of it, you're going to have to wait like eight months for it for you to get it. Yeah. So you go through yeah. someplace else that's private. But I, yeah, it's, and then you're selling your records for like $40 at a show. And like that, ugh. Yeah, you have to There's have. People buy them now because they don't know how much records are. They're like the first timers or whatever. I'm like, no, it's like $40. That's so much for well, a record. Well, not just that, but I think, I think that it's also people that are buying them want to support the artist. Course, if you're going course, to a yeah. show, if you're, if you're going to a show, at a room that's like, you know, a mid-size room, like an 800 cap room, something like that, then you're going to that show because you're supporting that artist. It's not it's not about being a part of the thing when you're selling out arenas or stadiums or something. Like, that's a whole different thing. Like, those people may or may not, but like, like buy a $40 album or vinyl from that artist. But like, the people that are going to an 800 cap room to see that artist will if they have the money they will for sure spend the money to support that artist you know I, I think it's so funny still that bands have cd release shows even though nobody listens to cds anymore but you just have to have that physical thing if you don't have a record or whatever so i just it's weird still to me yeah or yeah but like you said they're just trying to support the band and everything and that's something that's always going to be cheap I don't, who knows that could come back too. CDs will probably make a comeback at some point ah, as well. It's all like, cyclical. I, I think they are. I think they are. Yeah. I think we're going to see CDs come back for sure. Yeah, next ten years definitely. I think I could see. Yeah. I could see like some like really rare like. Do they even do first pressing of CDs? But I'm sure they do. And then like unopened, and it's still got the Best Buy tag on it. They'll start putting CD <laughs> players back in cars again. No, and then we, like I would love that. Yeah, and like they, we got to bring back the '90s bonus track. Like at like track oh, yeah. 14, you got to wait two minutes after track 13. Yes, 100. Yes, 100. Yeah. I'm talking that. Discman's with ESP on it. That's what we need. Yeah, bring that back. <laughs> I guarantee you that you go to eBay right now. They're probably a hundred dollars pop. Yeah, maybe. It yeah, since they're not are. producing them anymore. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, all right, dope. Well, that's uh, that's bottom line news this week. Um, yeah, all the other news is literally just CEOs of different record labels changing different record labels. So uh, not very interesting. So that's what we were with this week. But uh, now we hit unpopular opinions. This is my favorite segment of the show. Uh, and it can be about whatever you want, Rick. Uh, so if you got one stored away, uh, we're going to do Billy first. We'll do mine, and then we'll get yours. So if you don't have one stored away yet, think about it, and then we'll All right. talk about it. What you got, Bill? So this one's a little hedonistic, uh, but I think we should celebrate <laughs> birthdays every month. What? Yeah. Fuck no. I think we should. I think like uh, uh, every 24th, it's, it's my birthday. Okay, your birthday. What about the people in your life that you have to celebrate the birthday also? You gotta buy yeah, them gifts it would just be great. Holy fuck. Yeah. I can't afford that. <laughs> I th well, yeah, yeah. It would be it would be a little time consuming, but every day would be a birthday forever. Yeah, that sounds awful. All right. What do you think, Rick? <laughs> I, yeah, that's. I find that to be an unpopular opinion yeah. Yeah. myself. That, I'm not into that. I think it's, yeah, it's enough birthdays as it is. Although I, I agree you should celebrate the people in your life every day somehow uh. or at least once a month. But I, I think an actual birthday with the trappings of like you got to buy shit. Yeah, like you said, it's I can't afford that. We're all just struggling out here, dude. Yeah, nah, not with New York rent like it is. Nah. Yeah, that's just, yeah, not into that idea at all, Bill. That one, that's a solid one though. I will <laughs> Thank say. Thank you. Yeah, so it's good for the past. I had a strong feeling about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As Suji said that, I was like, literally, fuck I was like, you. Fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I. It would just be month to month. They'd be like, "This is my October birthday." Yeah. Yeah. No, that's terrible. We're not doing that. That'd be great. <laughs> um, okay. What do you think, Chris? 
Um. Yeah. No shot, man. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever. I already can't remember like my like half my cousins' birthdays and like my 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 nieces and nephews and all that shit. I'm just trying to like keep track and like even God, my. That would be the best too. Like you didn't remember it's my birthday today. Yeah. Well, what are you, your birthday's in April. I'm like it's October 24th now. Yeah. <laughs> Every month. Not into that. Okay. Whatever. It was stupid. No, no. It's a good, solid, and popular opinion. Uh, because <laughs> for sure, not into it. Okay. All right. uh, okay. So my unpopular opinion here uh, this week is, I'm gonna go with one that might be a little controversial across the board. Billy, you and I talk about this all the time, um, and you vehemently disagree with me on this. What? The what? world is. What word did you just use? You heard me. Uh, the world is overpopulated. The world is overpopulated with what? Just people. Oh, people. Okay. Yeah. I disagree. I know you disagree. What do you yeah. think, Rick? I think a lot I of people uh, agree with you, though. Sorry. I'm not sure. I don't. I'm not educated enough to have a real opinion, but I will say it seems like there's plenty of resources on planet Earth to support the number of people we have. But yeah. the the odds are not in favor of actually equitably distributing those resources. There, and that's that's the point that I always try to make with people because this is the argument amongst. This kind, of, this argument kind of is uh, uh, whether whether whatever your political views are or your religious views are. This argument seems to be wildly unpopular with people across the spectrum because there's again people that are more on one side of the aisle that say, well, there's enough resources here to be equitably distrib- distributed, and then you have people on the other side of the aisle who are like, well, regardless of that, it's our duty to procreate, so that's what we do, you know. And then in my view, I'm like. Yes, there's enough resources there for sure. However, people, uh, our needs are variable and grow exponentially. So with the more people that are on the earth, the more urgency we feel to have more things because we think we're going to run out of resources. So it creates this kind of like starving mentality of like every person for themselves, even though we don't need to operate in that capacity, you know? So that's the way that I think about it. So you think that it's going to become too populated later or it's too populated now? I think we're currently overpopulated. Okay. Uh, which is why we, we're seeing like, you know, like diseases spread the way they're spreading as rapidly as they're spreading, which is why we're seeing shortages of certain resources. Uh, and again, it's not because they're not there. It's that people are hoarding because they're afraid of not having due yeah. to the I amount of people that are the out there. I think that's the problem people are greedy. That happens. That, that's an inevitable consequence of there that, being too many people. That's my argument though. about why I don't think it's overpopulated. I think that that's, you know, the 1%. Yeah, have all the stuff, and the ninety nine percent don't. Right, but that's old news. Everybody knows that. Yeah. What do you think, Chris? Um, you know, the less people around, uh, the less musicians around, so the more streams I get on Spotify. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Who's gonna buy yeah. all your merch then, tough guy? It's true. Yeah, man. <laughs> Although I do like having people to play music with, so yeah, I've I've not run out of you know. There's a pretty big well of that. So if we chop those numbers down. Might get a little, might get a little boring if you and I are just sitting around playing a twelve-bar blues all day, bud. Maybe we should, maybe we should just like slow the population growth down and then really refocus. Well, really, which is another sign that we're overpopulated. Just really refocus uh, growing the population of bass players and drummers in this. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Holy fuck! Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm still trying to fill a gig this Friday. Parents, the you guys got a shortage down there in Jacksonville. What's going on? Bro, there's no goddamn drummers or bass players in this town. It's wild. Parent it's all Stan Piper and John Lockin, I fucking baby. love both those guys and they're both busy this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really just a drummer that I'm missing right now for this weekend. Sounds but. like an acoustic show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, although, yes, both those guys are amazing. I actually did a collaboration with Stan a while back, uh, we did a Corey Wong tune called Simon F15, and we did it all remotely during the pandemic, and it was a lot of fun mm. to be able to do that. Uh, and it was just sending out, it was, it was a really cool experience. I really enjoyed that. Stan's a fucking animal, man. He's a monster. I've known him since 2006 because he's another Florida State guy. He did his master's there oh, I when I was that. there. And he came in. It was a very traditional jazz program, but he came in with a six-string modulus like O'Teal. Hell yeah. And I was like, I like that guy. He's He's a crazy man. Yeah, so, he's yeah. he's playing a gnarly salsa band now called LPT. Uh, yeah, I was just Juan Roland saxophone. Yeah. Yep, yeah, yeah, yep. all those dudes. Yeah, I just I was hanging with them at a festival. What was like two weeks ago, Chris. Yeah, yeah, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I was hanging out with them for a while. They're all good people, man. I love those guys. Uh, Rick, yeah. what's what's your unpopular opinion, bro? What you got? Uh, I'm not much of a bomb thrower, but I'm gonna throw one now. I will qualify it a little bit, but uh, Van Morrison. Sucks. Oh no! Oh my Man. God! Wow! I'm just gonna say it. What about Into the Mystic, bud? All right, oh. that's my caveat. Is like I'm not gonna take away. Obviously, he's an important artist. He's written a lot of great songs. Love Into the Mystic. Oh, you know, Astral Weeks is great. But here's why I say he sucks. Like as a person. <laughs> yes. What did he do? Right. I saw him uh, three or four weeks ago here in New York at Forest Hills Amphitheater in Queens, and. Uh, yeah, I was a group of people was going. We're going, and somebody dropped out at the last minute. I got a ticket. I went along for the ride, and uh, he did not play one of his hits the entire time. He did about thirty seconds of Brown Eyed Girl, and the rest of the time it was just like bargain basement, like twelve bar blues covers, and uh. like not done that great. His band was killing, but he didn't play any of the hits, and also the sound sucked. Like I'm not sure if it was he must be traveling with his own sound person. He's Van Morrison. And it was so quiet, you could like whisper over the sound. It sounded terrible. You couldn't even understand his vocals. More like Van Morrison, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> and I go to like, like just to like, you know, nice. give the middle finger to this guy. I, I like went to the bathroom during Brown Eyed Girl because nice. I knew that was like the one time it would be the least occupied. <laughs> and I go in there and there's like four other like old, you know, like New York guys who are standing at the urinal trough and they're like, Fuck Van Morrison. He didn't play Crazy Love. He didn't play Tupelo Honey. Like, none of the hits. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Fuck Van. And, and then, like, one guy, like, I'm washing my hands, and one guy just goes, he's always been angry. Yeah. I was like, what? How do you know? And, and then I remembered, like, the anti-vax stuff, and I was just like, yeah, fuck you, Van Morrison. Thank you for your music. At, at one time, you were great. Right now... Nah, Van Morrison ain't it. Yeah, I feel that, man. I think this is going to be our next uh, viral TikTok, actually. Yeah, Van Morrison sucks. <laughs> we, we, just, uh, we just had uh, one of our TikToks go viral. Literally, it's like almost 300,000 views now, uh, which is wild. And like over like where almost 2,000 followers are like in one week, that just happened like that. That's amazing. And, and it was because I just said that Dwayne Allman's solo on Lalo is the worst guitar solo of all time. Oh, them fighting words, bro. I know, man. I know. There's a lot. There's a there's a a, a logic to the madness on that one, and uh, it's. I'm telling you, somebody told me back in the day when I was like 
when I like just discovering all this shit, he was like, go back and listen to late uh, to, to Dwayne's uh, slide playing on that. It's just a bunch of out of tune, just like fucking nonsense. And I was like, you're wrong. And then I went back and listened to it. And now I can, that this is 10 years ago and now I can't unhear it. It's just, it's there to, <laughs> to me forever. There's a reason why it's buried in the mix. There's like six layers going over it. I'm telling you there's it's, it's there. Just go and listen to it again. But you know, well, if, you can't remove it from the context. Like Tom Dowd was, he like put that shit together. Totally. And he's, he helped Dwayne. Yeah. Dwayne's out of tune, but the man is playing above the fretboard. There's no frets. He's flying without a net. Like he's, you know, he's doing the impossible. And yeah, like he didn't hit every note in tune for me. The emotional component was there. Yeah. Tom Dowd knew that he stuck it in there and then smartly layered all the other shit around. And now he's smartly layered, I but think it works. Smart, now he's smartly layered, <laughs> but buried it in the mix. You know what I mean? So it's like, and, but it's there. It's, it's there. there. He it didn't is, cut it completely. It, yeah. it is there. I like, like he was playing like above the fretboard, but he did do the possible, right? Because he played it out of tune. So it would have been, he did, <laughs> the imp, he did it impossible. If he played it perfectly in tune above the fretboard, that would have been impossible. Right. He, right. But he did the most possible thing, which is played in, correctly <laughs> now tom dowd did the impossible and was a masterful engineer and producer who made it all work in context so i give tom all the credit you're a fucking legend bub but uh tom dowd yeah forever yeah 100 uh but yeah Dwayne, one of my favorites of all time i have to give that caveat he's one of my favorites of all time but man i yeah he's he's had better moments in yeah, his career reel it in, Dwayne. what are you doing yeah reel it in bud what are we doing <laughs> <laughs> Look, if I if I can, while we're talking about Dwayne, uh, I I was not in attendance the other night, but Tedeschi Trucks man is currently in doing their Beacon Run. Yeah. Uh, mad praise to Tedeschi Trucks, love them to death. I heard they played Whipping Post and they only did a seven minute version, and I would just like to say twenty three minutes or bust, man. Come on, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you guys are playing a three hour set. You got a bunch of great songs to put in there. Play the new record. Do all that. Give me a twenty three minute Whipping. Yeah. Post. What are we Come doing? On. Don't phone it in on the Beacon Run, guys. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> for the love of Dwayne, come on. A hundred percent. I love it, man. Well, Rick, thank you so much for being with us today, man. We really appreciate This has been such a great conversation, honestly. Yeah, for sure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Really appreciate you guys for having me. Good luck with the rest of the podcast. I will be listening uh, every week. Appreciate you all for having me. I hope we get to do it again. Appreciate you, man. I, uh, I I may or may not be in New York at the beginning of the year, so I'll, I'll give you a shout when I'm out there, just connect or something. I'm going to be there for yeah. Christmas. Are you going to be up there too or no? You'll probably come back I home, might be going you? back to Tallahassee. That seems yeah, like yeah. the case. That's a good excuse. Let him, yeah, you don't want to hang out with Bill. He's no. in, I, I know what you're yeah. doing. You're getting out of a hang. I get it. It's, he's not a good hang. <laughs> I'm just fucking no, I, you, I hate We should hang, though. I'll hit y'all up next time I'm in Jacksonville too. I, yeah. I need to down there a good bit. At least do yeah. that. Hell yeah. All right, man. Well, sure. Have a good rest of the night. We'll talk to you soon. You too. Y'all take care. Later, man. Have a good one. Adios, yep. muchachos.